At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Chapter 20 of Around the World in 80 Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. Chapter 20 In Which Fix Comes Face to Face with Phileas Fogg. While these events were passing at the Opium House, Mr. Fogg, unconscious of the danger he was in of losing the steamer, was quietly escorting Aouda about the streets of the English Quarter, making the necessary purchases for the long voyage before them. It was all very well for an Englishman like Mr. Fogg to make the tour of the world with a carpet-bag. A lady could not be expected to travel comfortably under such conditions. He acquitted his task with characteristic serenity and invariably replied to the remonstrances of his fair companion, who was confused by his patience and generosity. It is in the interest of my journey, a part of my programme. The purchases made, they returned to the hotel, where they dined at a sumptuously served table d'hote, after which Aouda, shaking hands with her protector after the English fashion, retired to her room for rest. Mr. Fogg absorbed himself throughout the evening in the perusal of the Times and illustrated London news. Had he been capable of being astonished at anything, it would have been not to see his servant return at bedtime. But, knowing that the steamer was not to leave for Yokohama until the next morning, he did not disturb himself about the matter. When Passepartout did not appear the next morning to answer his master's bell, Mr. Fogg, not betraying the least vexation, contented himself with taking his carpet-bag, calling Aouda, and sending for a palanquin. It was then eight o'clock. At half-past nine, it being then high tide, the Carnatic would leave the harbour. Mr. Fogg and Aouda got into the palanquin, their luggage being brought after on a wheelbarrow, and half an hour later stepped upon the quay whence they were to embark. Mr. Fogg then learned that the Carnatic had sailed the evening before. He had expected to find not only the steamer but his domestic, and was forced to give up both. But no sign of disappointment appeared on his face, and he merely remarked to Aouda, "'It is an accident, madam, nothing more.' At this moment a man who had been observing him attentively approached. It was Fix, who, bowing, addressed Mr. Fogg. Were you not 
like me, sir, a passenger by the Rangoon, which arrived yesterday? I was, sir, replied Mr. Fogg coldly. But I have not the honour. Pardon me, I thought I should find your servant here. Do you know where he is, sir? asked Aouda anxiously. What? responded Fix, feigning surprise. Is he not with you? No, said Aouda. He has not made his appearance since yesterday. Could he have gone on board the Carnatic without us? Without you, madam, answered the detective. Excuse me, did you intend to sail in the Carnatic? Yes, sir. So did I, madam, and I am excessively disappointed. The Carnatic, its repairs being completed, left Hong Kong twelve hours before the stated time, without any notice being given and we must now wait a week for another steamer." As he said, a week, Fix felt his harp leap for joy. Fogg detained at Hong Kong for a week. There would be time for the warrant to arrive, and fortune at last favoured the representative of the law. His horror may be imagined when he heard Mr. Fogg say, in his placid voice, "'But there are other vessels besides the Carnatic, it seems to me, in the harbour of Hong Kong.' and, offering his arm to Aouda, he directed his steps toward the docks in search of some craft about to start. Fix, stupefied, followed. It seemed as if he were attached to Mr. Fogg by an invisible thread. Chance, however, appeared really to have abandoned the man it had hitherto served so well. For three hours Phileas Fogg wandered about the docks, with the determination, if necessary, to charter a vessel to carry him to Yokohama but he could only find vessels which were loading or unloading, and which could not therefore set sail. Fix began to hope again. But Mr. Fogg, far from being discouraged, was continuing his search. Resolved not to stop if he had to resort to Macau, when he was accosted by a sailor on one of the wharves. "'Is your honour looking for a boat?' "'Have you a boat ready to sail?' Yes, Your Honour, a pilot-boat, for number 43, the best in the harbour. Does she go fast? Between eight and nine knots the hour. Will you look at her? Yes. Your Honour will be satisfied with her. Is it a sea excursion? No, for a voyage. A voyage? Yes. Will you agree to take me to Yokohama? The sailor leaned on the railing, opened his eyes wide, and said, "'Is your honour joking?' "'No. I have missed the Carnatic, and I must get to Yokohama by the fourteenth at the latest, to take the boat for San Francisco.' "'I am sorry,' said the sailor, "'but it is impossible.' "'I offer you a hundred pounds per day, and an additional reward of two hundred pounds if I reach Yokohama in time.' Are you in earnest? Very much so. The pilot walked away a little distance, and gazed out to sea, evidently struggling between the anxiety to gain a large sum, and the fear of venturing so far. Fix was in mortal suspense. Mr. Fogg turned to Aouda, and asked her, You would not be afraid, would you, madam? Not with you, Mr. Fogg, was her answer. The pilot now returned, shuffling his hat in his hands. "'Well, pilot,' said Mr. Fogg, "'well, your honour,' 
replied he, I could not risk myself, my men, or my little boat of scarcely twenty tons on so long a voyage at this time of year. Besides, we could not reach Yokohama in time, for it is sixteen hundred and sixty miles from Hong Kong. Only sixteen hundred, said Mr. Fogg. It's the same thing. Fix breathed more freely. But, added the pilot, it might be arranged another way. Fix ceased to breathe at all. How? asked Mr. Fogg. By going to Nagasaki, at the extreme south of Japan, or even to Shanghai, which is only eight hundred miles from here. In going to Shanghai we should not be forced to sail wide of the Chinese coast, which would be a great advantage, as the currents run northeast and would aid us. Pilot, said Mr. Fogg, I must take the American steamer at Yokohama, and not at Shanghai or Nagasaki. Why not? returned the pilot. The San Francisco steamer does not start from Yokohama. It puts in at Yokohama and Nagasaki, but it starts from Shanghai. You are sure of that? Perfectly. And when does the boat leave Shanghai? On the eleventh, at seven in the evening. We have, therefore, four days before us, that is ninety-six hours, and in that time, if we had good luck, and the southwest wind, and the sea was calm, we could make those eight hundred miles to Shanghai. And you could go? In an hour, as soon as provisions could be got aboard and the sails put up. It is a bargain. Are you the master of the boat? Yes. John Bunsby, master of the Tankadere. Would you like some earnest money? If it would not put your honour out. Here are two hundred pounds on account, sir added Phileas Fogg, turning to Fix. If you would like to take advantage. Thanks, sir. I was about to ask the favour. Very well. In half an hour we shall go on board. But poor Passepartout, urged Aouda, who was much disturbed by the servant's disappearance. I shall do all I can to find him, replied Phileas Fogg. While Fix, in a feverish, nervous state, repaired to the pilot-boat, the others directed their course to the police station at Hong Kong. Phileas Fogg there gave Passepartout's description, and left a sum of money, to be spent in the search for him. The same formalities having been gone through at the French consulate, and the palanquin having stopped at the hotel for the luggage, which had been sent back there, they returned to the wharf. It was now three o'clock, and pilot-boat number forty-three, with its crew on board and its provisions stored away, was ready for departure. The Tankadere was a neat little craft of twenty tons, as gracefully built as if she were a racing-yacht. Her shining copper sheathing, her galvanized ironwork, her deck white as ivory, betrayed the pride taken by John Bunsby in making her presentable. Her two masts leaned a trifle backward, she carried brigantine, foresail, storm-jib, and standing-jib, and was well rigged for running before the wind and she seemed capable of brisk speed, which, indeed, she had already proved by gaining several prizes in pilot-boat races. The crew of the Tankadere was composed of John Bunsby, the master, and four hardy mariners who were familiar with the Chinese seas. John Bunsby himself, a man of forty-five or thereabouts, vigorous, sunburnt, 
with a sprightly expression of the eye, an energetic and self-reliant countenance, would have inspired confidence in the most timid. Phileas Fogg and Aouda went on board, where they found Fix already installed. Below deck was a square cabin, of which the walls bulged out, in the form of cots, above a circular divan. In the centre was a table, provided with a swinging lamp. The accommodation was confined, but neat. "'I am sorry to have nothing better to offer you,' said Mr. Fogg to Fix, who bowed without responding. The detective had a feeling akin to humiliation in profiting by the kindness of Mr. Fogg. "'It's certain,' thought he, "'though rascal as he is, he is a polite one.' The sails and the English flag were hoisted at ten minutes past three. Mr. Fogg and Aouda, who were seated on deck, cast a last glance at the quay, in the hope of espying Passepartout. Fix was not without his fears, lest chance should direct the steps of the unfortunate servant, whom he had so badly treated, in this direction, in which case an explanation, the reverse of satisfactory to the detective, must have ensued. But the Frenchman did not appear, and without doubt was still lying under the stupefying influence of the opium. John Bunsby, master, at length gave the order to start, and the Tankadere, taking the wind under her brigantine foresail and standing jib, bounded briskly forward over the waves. End of chapter Chapter 21 of Around the World in Eighty Days This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne Chapter 21 In which the master of the Tankadere runs great risk of losing a reward of two hundred pounds. This voyage of eight hundred miles was a perilous venture on a craft of twenty tons, and at that season of the year. The Chinese seas are usually boisterous, subject to terrible gales of wind, and especially during the equinoxes, and it was now early November. It would clearly have been to the master's advantage to carry his passengers to Yokohama, since he was paid a certain sum per day, but he would have been rash to attempt such a voyage, and it was imprudent even to attempt to reach Shanghai. But John Bunsby believed in the Tankadere, which rode on the waves like a seagull, and perhaps he was not wrong. Late in the day they passed through the capricious channels of Hong Kong, and the Tankadere, impelled by favourable winds, conducted herself admirably. "'I do not need pilot,' said Phileas Fogg, when they got into the open sea to advise you to use all possible speed. Trust me, your honour, we are carrying all the sail the wind will let us. The poles would add nothing, and are only used when we are going into port. It's your trade, not mine, pilot, and I confide in you." Phileas Fogg, with body erect and legs wide apart, standing like a sailor, gazed without staggering at the swelling waters. The young woman, who was seated aft, was profoundly affected as she looked out upon the ocean, darkening now with a twilight, on which she had ventured in so frail a vessel. 
Above her head rustled the white sails, which seemed like great white wings. The boat, carried forward by the wind, seemed to be flying in the air. Night came. The moon was entering her first quarter, and her insufficient light would soon die out in the mist on the horizon. Clouds were rising from the east, and already overcast a part of the heavens. The pilot had hung out his lights, which was very necessary in these seas, crowded with vessels bound landward, for collisions are not uncommon occurrences, and at the speed she was going, the least shock would shatter the gallant little craft. Fix, seated in the bow, gave himself up to meditation. He kept apart from his fellow-travellers, knowing Mr. Fogg's taciturn tastes. Besides, he did not quite like to talk to the man whose favours he had accepted. He was thinking, too, of the future. It seemed certain that Fogg would not stop at Yokohama, but would at once take the boat for San Francisco, and the vast extent of America would ensure him impunity and safety. Fogg's plan appeared to him the simplest in the world. Instead of sailing directly from England to the United States, like a common villain, he had traversed three-quarters of the globe, so as to gain the American continent more surely, and there, after throwing the police off his track, he would quietly enjoy himself with the fortune stolen from the bank. But, once in the United States, what should he, Fix, do? Should he abandon this man? No, a hundred times, no. Until he had secured his extradition, he would not lose sight of him for an hour. It was his duty, and he would fulfil it to the end. At all events, there was one thing to be thankful for. Passepartout was not with his master, and it was above all important, after the confidences Fix had imparted to him, that the servant should never have speech with his master. Phileas Fogg was also thinking of Passepartout, who had so strangely disappeared. Looking at the matter from every point of view, it did not seem to him impossible that, by some mistake, the man might have embarked on the Carnatic at the last moment. And this was also Aouda's opinion, who regretted very much the loss of the worthy fellow to whom she owed so much. They might then find him at Yokohama, for, if the Carnatic was carrying him thither, it would be easy to ascertain if he had been on board. A brisk breeze arose about ten o'clock, but though it might have been prudent to take in a reef, the pilot, after carefully examining the heavens, let the craft remain rigged as before. The tankadere bore sail admirably, as she drew a great deal of water, and everything was prepared for high speed in case of a gale. Mr. Fogg and Aouda descended into the cabin at midnight, having been already preceded by Fix, who had lain down on one of the cots. The pilot and crew remained on deck all night. At sunrise the next day, which was 8th November, the boat had made more than one hundred miles. The log indicated a mean speed of between eight and nine miles. The tankadere still carried all sail, and was accomplishing her greatest capacity of speed. If the wind held as it was, the chances would be in her favour. During the day she kept along the coast, where the currents were favourable. The coast, irregular in profile, and visible sometimes across the clearings, was at most five miles distant. The sea was less boisterous, since the wind came off land, a fortunate circumstance for the boat, which would suffer, owing to its small tonnage, by a heavy surge on the sea.
The breeze subsided a little towards noon, and set in from the southwest. The pilot put up his poles, but took them down again within two hours, as the wind freshened up anew. Mr. Fogg and Aouda, happily unaffected by the roughness of the sea, ate with a good appetite, Fix being invited to share their repast, which he accepted with secret chagrin. To travel at this man's expense and live upon his provisions was not palatable to him. Still he was obliged to eat, and so he ate. When the meal was over he took Mr. Fogg apart, and said, Sir. This sir scorched his lips, and he had to control himself to avoid collaring this gentleman. Sir, you have been very kind to give me a passage on this boat. But, though my means will not admit of my expending them as freely as you, I must ask to pay my share. Let us not speak of that, sir, replied Mr. Fogg. But if I insist— No, sir, repeated Mr. Fogg, in a tone which did not admit of a reply. This enters into my general expenses. Fix, as he bowed, had a stifled feeling, and, going forward, where he ensconced himself, did not open his mouth for the rest of the day. Meanwhile they were progressing famously, and John Bunsby was in high hope. He several times assured Mr. Fogg that they would reach Shanghai in time, to which that gentleman responded that he counted upon it. The crew set to work in good earnest, inspired by the reward to be gained. There was not a sheet which was not tightened, not a sail which was not vigorously hoisted, not a lurch could be charged to the man at the helm. They worked as desperately as if they were contesting in a royal yacht regatta. By evening the log showed that two hundred and twenty miles had been accomplished from Hong Kong, and Mr. Fogg might hope that he would be able to reach Yokohama without recording any delay in his journal, in which case the many misadventures which had overtaken him since he left London would not seriously affect his journey. The Tankadere entered the Straits of Fo Kien, which separate the island of Formosa from the Chinese coast, in the small hours of the night, and crossed the Tropic of Cancer. The sea was very rough in the straits, full of eddies formed by the counter-currents, and the chopping waves broke her course, whilst it became very difficult to stand on deck. At daybreak the wind began to blow hard again, and the heavens seemed to predict a gale. The barometer announced a speedy change, the mercury rising and falling capriciously. The sea also, in the southeast, raised long surges, which indicated a tempest. The sun had set the evening before in a red mist, in the midst of the phosphorescent scintillations of the ocean. John Bunsby long examined the threatening aspect of the heavens, muttering indistinctly between his teeth. At last he said in a low voice to Mr. Fogg, "'Shall I speak out to your honour?' "'Of course.' "'Well, we are going to have a squall.' "'Is the wind north or south?' asked Mr. Fogg quietly. "'South. Look, a typhoon is coming up.' "'Glad it's a typhoon from the south, for it will carry us forward.' "'Oh, if you take it that way,' said John Bunsby, "'I've nothing more to say.' John Bunsby's suspicions were confirmed. At a less advanced season of the year the typhoon, according to a famous meteorologist, would have passed away like a luminous cascade of electric flame 
but in the winter equinox it was to be feared that it would burst upon them with great violence. The pilot took his precautions in advance. He reefed all sail. The pole-masts were dispensed with. All hands went forward to the bows. A single triangular sail, of strong canvas, was hoisted as a storm-jib, so as to hold the wind from behind. Then they waited. John Bunsby had requested his passengers to go below, but this imprisonment, in so narrow a space, with little air, and the boat bouncing in the gale, was far from pleasant. Neither Mr. Fogg, Fix, nor Aouda consented to leave the deck. The storm of rain and wind descended upon them towards eight o'clock. With but its bit of sail, the tankadere was lifted like a feather by a wind, an idea of whose violence can scarcely be given. To compare her speed to four times that of a locomotive going on full steam would be below the truth. The boat scudded thus northward during the whole day, borne on by monstrous waves, preserving always, fortunately, a speed equal to theirs. Twenty times she seemed almost to be submerged by those mountains of water which rose behind her, but the adroit management of the pilot saved her. The passengers were often bathed in spray, but they submitted to it philosophically. Fix cursed it, no doubt. But Aouda, with her eyes fastened upon her protector, whose coolness amazed her, showed herself worthy of him, and bravely weathered the storm. As for Phileas Fogg, it seemed just as if the typhoon were a part of his programme. Up to this time the Tankadere had always held her course to the north but towards evening the wind, veering three-quarters, bore down from the northwest. The boat, now lying in the trough of the waves, shook and rolled terribly. The sea struck her with fearful violence. At night the tempest increased in violence. John Bunsby saw the approach of darkness and the rising of the storm with dark misgivings. He thought a while, and then asked his crew if it was not time to slacken speed. After a consultation, he approached Mr. Fogg, and said, "'I think, Your Honour, that we should do well to make for one of the ports on the coast.' "'I think so, too.' "'Ah!' said the pilot. "'But which one?' "'I know of but one,' returned Mr. Fogg tranquilly. "'And that is—' "'Shanghai.' The pilot, at first, did not seem to comprehend— he could scarcely realize so much determination and tenacity. Then he cried, "'Well, yes, your honour is right. To Shanghai!' So the Tankadere kept steadily on her northward track. The night was really terrible. It would be a miracle if the craft did not founder. Twice it could have been all over with her if the crew had not been constantly on the watch." Aouda was exhausted, but did not utter a complaint. More than once Mr. Fogg rushed to protect her from the violence of the waves. Day reappeared. The tempest still raged with undiminished fury, but the wind now returned to the southeast. It was a favourable change, and the Tankadere again bounded forward on this mountainous sea, though the waves crossed each other and imparted shocks and counter-shocks, which would have crushed a craft less solidly built. From time to time the coast was visible through the broken mist, but no vessel was in sight. The Tankadere was alone upon the sea. 
There were some signs of a calm at noon, and these became more distinct as the sun descended toward the horizon. The tempest had been as brief as terrific. The passengers, thoroughly exhausted, could now eat a little and take some repose. The night was comparatively quiet. Some of the sails were again hoisted, and the speed of the boat was very good. The next morning at dawn they espied the coast, and John Bunsby was able to assert that they were not one hundred miles from Shanghai. A hundred miles, and only one day to traverse them. That very evening Mr. Fogg was due at Shanghai, if he did not wish to miss the steamer to Yokohama. Had there been no storm, during which several hours were lost, they would be at this moment within thirty miles of their destination. The wind grew decidedly calmer, and happily the sea fell with it. All sails were now hoisted, and at noon the Tankadere was within forty-five miles of Shanghai. There remained yet six hours in which to accomplish that distance. All on board feared that it could not be done, and every one, Phileas Fogg no doubt excepted, felt his heart beat with impatience. The boat must keep up an average of nine miles an hour, and the wind was becoming calmer every moment. It was a capricious breeze coming from the coast, and after it passed the sea became smooth. Still the Tankadere was so light, and her fine sails caught the fickle zephyrs so well, that with the aid of the currents John Bunsby found himself at six o'clock not more than ten miles from the mouth of Shanghai River. Shanghai itself is situated at least twelve miles up the stream. At seven they were still three miles from Shanghai. The pilot swore an angry oath. The reward of two hundred pounds was evidently on the point of escaping him. He looked at Mr. Fogg. Mr. Fogg was perfectly tranquil, and yet his whole fortune was at this moment at stake. At this moment also a long black funnel, crowned with wreaths of smoke, appeared on the edge of the waters. It was the American steamer, leaving for Yokohama at the appointed time. "'Confound her!' cried John Bunsby, pushing back the rudder with a desperate jerk. "'Signal her,' said Phileas Fogg quietly. A small brass cannon stood on the forward deck of the Tankadere, for making signals in the fogs. It was loaded to the muzzle, but just as the pilot was about to apply a red-hot coal to the touch-hole, Mr. Fogg said, hoist your flag. The flag was run up at half-mast, and this being the signal of distress, it was hoped that the American steamer, perceiving it, would change her course a little, so as to succour the pilot-boat. "'Fire!' said Mr. Fogg, and the booming of the little cannon resounded in the air. End of chapter Chapter Twenty Two of Around the World in Eighty Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne. Chapter Twenty Two, in which Passepartout finds out that even at the antipodes it is convenient to have some money in one's pocket. The Carnatic, setting sail from Hong Kong at half-past six on the 7th of November, 
directed her course at full steam towards Japan. She carried a large cargo and a well-filled cabin of passengers. Two staterooms in the rear were, however, unoccupied, those which had been engaged by Phileas Fogg. The next day a passenger with a half-stupefied eye, staggering gait, and disordered hair, was seen to emerge from the second cabin, and to totter to a seat on deck. It was Passepartout, and what had happened to him was as follows. Shortly after Fix left the opium den, two waiters had lifted the unconscious Passepartout, and had carried him to the bed reserved for the smokers. Three hours later, pursued even in his dreams by a fixed idea, the poor fellow awoke, and struggled against the stupefying influence of the narcotic. The thought of a duty unfulfilled shook off his torpor, and he hurried from the abode of drunkenness. Staggering and holding himself up by keeping against the walls, falling down and creeping up again, and irresistibly impelled by a kind of instinct, he kept crying out, THE CARNATIC! THE CARNATIC! The steamer lay puffing alongside the quay, on the point of starting. Passepartout had but a few steps to go, and, rushing upon the plank, he crossed it, and fell unconscious on the deck, just as the Carnatic was moving off. Several sailors, who were evidently accustomed to this sort of scene, carried the poor Frenchman down into the second cabin, and Passepartout did not wake until they were one hundred and fifty miles away from China. Thus he found himself the next morning on the deck of the Carnatic, and eagerly inhaling the exhilarating sea-breeze. The pure air sobered him. He began to collect his sense, which he found a difficult task, but at last he recalled the events of the evening before, Fix's revelation, and the opium-house. "'It is evident,' said he to himself, that I have been abominably drunk. What will Mr. Fogg say? At least I have not missed the steamer, which is the most important thing." Then, as Fix occurred to him, "'As for that rascal, I hope we are well rid of him, and that he has not dared, as he proposed, to follow us on board the Carnatic. A detective on the track of Mr. Fogg, accused of robbing the Bank of England! Pshaw! Mr. Fogg! is no more a robber than I am a murderer." Should he divulge Fix's real errand to his master? Would it do to tell the part the detective was playing? Would it not be better to wait until Mr. Fogg reached London again, and then impart to him that an agent of the Metropolitan Police had been following him round the world, and have a good laugh over it? No doubt, at least, it was worth considering. The first thing to do was to find Mr. Fogg and apologize for his singular behavior. Passepartout got up and proceeded, as well as he could with the rolling of the steamer, to the after-deck. He saw no one who resembled either his master or Aouda. "'Good,' muttered he, "'Aouda has not got up yet, and Mr. Fogg has probably found some partners at whist.' He descended to the saloon. Mr. Fogg was not there. Passepartout had only, however, to ask the purser the number of his master's stateroom. The purser replied that he did not know any passenger by the name of Fogg. "'I beg your pardon,' said Passepartout, persistently. "'He is a tall gentleman, quiet, not very talkative, and has with him a young lady—' "'There is no young lady on board,' 
interrupted the purser. Here is a list of the passengers you may see for yourself. Passepartout scanned the list, but his master's name was not upon it. All at once an idea struck him. Ah! Am I on the Carnatic? Yes. On the way to Yokohama? Certainly. Passepartout had for an instant feared that he was on the wrong boat, but though he was really on the Carnatic, his master was not there. He fell thunderstruck on a seat. He saw it all now. He remembered that the time of sailing had been changed, that he should have informed his master of that fact, and that he had not done so. It was his fault, then, that Mr. Fogg and Aouda had missed the steamer. Yes, but it was still more the fault of the traitor who, in order to separate him from his master, and detain the latter at Hong Kong, had inveigled him into getting drunk. He now saw the detective's trick, and at this moment Mr. Fogg was certainly ruined. His bet was lost, and he himself perhaps arrested and imprisoned. At this thought Passepartout tore his hair. Ah, if Fix ever came within his reach, what a settling of accounts there would be! After his first depression, Passepartout became calmer, and began to study his situation. It was certainly not an enviable one. He found himself on the way to Japan, and what should he do when he got there? His pocket was empty. He had not a solitary shilling, not so much as a penny. His passage had fortunately been paid for in advance, and he had five or six days in which to decide upon his future course. He fell to at meals with an appetite, and ate for Mr. Fogg, Aouda, and himself. He helped himself as generously as if Japan were a desert, where nothing to eat was to be looked for. At dawn on the 13th the Carnatic entered the port of Yokohama. This is an important port of call in the Pacific, where all the mail steamers, and those carrying passengers between North America, China, Japan, and the Oriental Islands, put in. It is situated in the Bay of Yeddo, and at but a short distance from that second capital of the Japanese Empire, and the residence of the Tycoon, the Civil Emperor. Before the Mikado, the Spiritual Emperor absorbed his office in his own. The Carnatic anchored at the quay near the Custom House, in the midst of a crowd of ships bearing the flags of all nations. Passepartout went timidly ashore on this so curious territory of the Sons of the Sun. He had nothing better to do than, taking chance for his guide, to wander aimlessly through the streets of Yokohama. He found himself at first in a thoroughly European quarter, the houses having low fronts, and being adorned with verandas beneath which he caught glimpses of neat peristyles. This quarter occupied, with its streets, squares, docks, and warehouses, all the space between the promontory of the treaty and the river. Here, as at Hong Kong and Calcutta, were mixed crowds of all races, Americans and English, Chinamen and Dutchmen, mostly merchants ready to buy or sell anything. The Frenchman felt himself as much alone among them as if he had dropped down in the midst of Hottentots. He had, at least, one resource to call on the French and English consuls at Yokohama for assistance, but he shrank from telling the story of his adventures, intimately connected as it was with that of his master. And, before doing so, he determined to exhaust all other means of aid. 
as chance did not favour him in the European quarter, he penetrated that inhabited by the native Japanese, determined, if necessary, to push on to Yeddo. The Japanese quarter of Yokohama is called Benton, after the goddess of the sea, who is worshipped on the islands round about. There Passepartout beheld beautiful fir and cedar groves, sacred gates of a singular architecture, bridges half hid in the midst of bamboos and reeds, temples shaded by immense cedar trees, holy retreats where sheltered Buddhist priests and sectaries of Confucius, and interminable streets where a perfect harvest of rose-tinted and red-cheeked children, who looked as if they had been cut out of Japanese screens, and who were playing in the midst of short-legged poodles and yellowish cats, might have been gathered. The streets were crowded with people. Priests were passing in processions, beating their dreary tambourines. Police and custom-house officers with pointed hats encrusted with lock and carrying two sabres hung to their waists. Soldiers, clad in blue cotton with white stripes, and bearing guns. The Mikado's guards, enveloped in silken doubles, hauberks and coats of mail, and numbers of military folk of all ranks, for the military profession is as much respected in Japan as it is despised in China, went hither and thither in groups and pairs. Passepartout saw, too, begging friars, long-robed pilgrims, and simple civilians, with their warped and jet-black hair, big head, long busts, slender legs, short stature, and complexions varying from copper color to a dead white, but never yellow, like the Chinese, from whom the Japanese widely differ. He did not fail to observe the curious equipages, carriages and palanquins, barrows supplied with sails, and litters made of bamboo, nor the women, whom he thought not especially handsome, who took little steps with their little feet, whereon they wore canvas shoes, straw sandals, and clogs of worked wood, and who displayed tight-looking eyes, flat chests, teeth fashionably blackened, and gowns crossed with silken scarves, tied in an enormous knot behind an ornament which the modern Parisian ladies seem to have borrowed from the dames of Japan. Passepartout wandered for several hours in the midst of this motley crowd, looking in at the windows of the rich and curious shops, the jewellery establishments, glittering with quaint Japanese ornaments, the restaurants decked with streamers and banners, the tea-houses where the odorous beverage was being drunk with sake, a liquor concocted from the fermentation of rice, and the comfortable smoking-houses where they were puffing not opium, which is almost unknown in Japan, but a very fine stringy tobacco. He went on till he found himself in the fields, in the midst of vast rice-plantations. There he saw dazzling camellias expanding themselves, with flowers which were giving forth their last colours and perfumes, not on bushes, but on trees, and within bamboo enclosures. Cherry, plum, and apple trees, which the Japanese cultivate rather for their blossoms than their fruit, and which queerly fashioned grinning scarecrows protected from the sparrows, pigeons, ravens, and other voracious birds. On the branches of the cedars were perched large eagles. Amid the foliage of the weeping willows were herons, solemnly standing on one leg. And on every hand were crows, ducks, hawks, wild birds, and a multitude of cranes, 
which the Japanese consider sacred, and which to their minds symbolize long life and prosperity. As he was strolling along, Passepartout espied some violets among the shrubs. "'Good,' said he, "'I'll have some supper.' But on smelling them he found that they were odorless. "'No chance there,' thought he. The worthy fellow had certainly taken good care to eat as hearty a breakfast as possible before leaving the Carnatic, but, as he had been walking about all day, the demands of hunger were becoming importunate. He observed that the butcher's stalls contained neither mutton, goat, nor pork, and knowing also that it is a sacrilege to kill cattle, which are preserved solely for farming, he made up his mind that meat was far from plentiful in Yokohama nor was he mistaken, and in default of butcher's meat he could have wished for a quarter of wild boar or deer, a partridge or some quails, some game or fish, which with rice the Japanese eat almost exclusively. But he found it necessary to keep up a stout heart, and to postpone the meal he craved till the following morning. Night came, and Passepartout re-entered the native quarter, where he wandered through the streets lit by very-coloured lanterns, looking on at the dancers, who were executing skilful steps and boundings, and the astrologers who stood in the open air with their telescopes. Then he came to the harbour, which was lit up by the resin torches of the fishermen, who were fishing from their boats. The streets at last became quiet, and the patrol, the officers of which, in their splendid costumes, and surrounded by their suites, Passepartout thought seemed like ambassadors, succeeded the bustling crowd. Each time a company passed, Passepartout chuckled and said to himself, "'Good! Another Japanese embassy departing for Europe!' End of chapter Chapter 23 of Around the World in Eighty Days This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith, of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne Chapter 23, in which Passepartout's nose becomes outrageously long. The next morning, Poor, jaded, famished, Passepartout said to himself that he must get something to eat at all hazards, and the sooner he did so, the better. He might indeed sell his watch, but he would have starved first. Now or never he must use the strong, if not melodious voice which nature had bestowed upon him. He knew several French and English songs, and resolved to try them upon the Japanese, who must be lovers of music, since they were forever pounding on their cymbals, tam-tams, and tambourines, and could not but appreciate European talent. It was, perhaps, rather early in the morning to get up a concert, and the audience prematurely aroused from their slumbers might not possibly pay their entertainer with coin bearing the Mikado's features. Passepartout therefore decided to wait several hours, and, as he was sauntering along, it occurred to him that he would seem rather too well dressed for a wandering artist. The idea struck him to change his garments for clothes more in harmony with his project, by which he might also get a little money to satisfy the immediate cravings of hunger. 
The resolution taken, it remained to carry it out. It was only after a long search that Passepartout discovered a native dealer in old clothes, to whom he applied for an exchange. The man liked the European costume, and ere long Passepartout issued from his shop, accoutred in an old Japanese coat, and a sort of one-sided turban, faded with long use. A few small pieces of silver, moreover, jingled in his pocket. Good, thought he, I will imagine I am at the carnival. His first care, after being thus Japaneseed, was to enter a tea-house of modest appearance, and, upon half a bird and a little rice, to breakfast like a man for whom dinner was as yet a problem to be solved. Now, thought he, when he had eaten heartily, I mustn't lose my head. I can't sell this costume again for one still more Japanese. I must consider how to leave this country of the sun, of which I shall not retain the most delightful of memories, as quickly as possible. It occurred to him to visit the steamers which were about to leave for America. He would offer himself as a cook or servant, in payment of his passage and meals. Once at San Francisco he would find some means of going on. The difficulty was how to traverse the four thousand seven hundred miles of the Pacific which lay between Japan and the New World. Passepartout was not the man to let an idea go begging, and directed his steps toward the docks. But as he approached them, his project, which at first had seemed so simple, began to grow more and more formidable to his mind. What need would they have of a cook or servant on an American steamer? and what confidence would they put in him, dressed as he was? What references could he give? As he was reflecting in this wise, his eyes fell upon an immense placard which a sort of clown was carrying through the streets. This placard, which was in English, read as follows. Acrobatic Japanese Troop, Honorable William Battlecar, Proprietor, last representations prior to their departure to the united states of the long noses long noses under the direct patronage of the god tingu great attraction the united states said passepartout that's just what i want he followed the clown and soon found himself once more in the japanese quarter a quarter of an hour later he stopped before a large cabin adorned with several clusters of streamers the exterior walls of which were designed to represent, in violent colors, and without perspective, a company of jugglers. This was the Honorable William Battlecar's establishment. That gentleman was a sort of Barnum, the director of a troop of mountebanks, jugglers, clowns, acrobats, equilibrists, and gymnasts, who, according to the placard, was giving his last performances before leaving the Empire of the Sun for the States of the Union. Passepartout entered, and asked for Mr. Battlecar, who straightway appeared in person. "'What do you want?' said he to Passepartout, whom he at first took for a native. "'Would you like a servant, sir?' asked Passepartout. "'A servant!' cried Mr. Battlecar, caressing the thick grey beard which hung from his chin. "'I already have two who are obedient and faithful, have never left me and serve me for their nourishment, and here they are," added he, holding out his two robust arms, furrowed with veins as large as the strings of a bass viol. 
So I can be of no use to you? None. The devil! I should so like to cross the Pacific with you. Ah! said the Honourable Mr. Battlecar. You are no more a Japanese than I am a monkey. Who are you dressed up in that way? A man dresses as he can. That's true. You are a Frenchman, aren't you? Yes, a Parisian of Paris. Then you ought to know how to make grimaces. Why? replied Passepartout, a little vexed that his nationality should cause this question. We Frenchmen know how to make grimaces. It is true, but not any better than the Americans do. True. Well, if I can't take you as a servant, I can as a clown. You see, my friend, in France they exhibit foreign clowns, and in foreign parts French clowns. Ah! You are pretty strong, eh? especially after a good meal. And you can sing? Yes, returned Passepartout, who had formerly been wont to sing in the streets. But can you sing standing on your head, with a top spinning on your left foot, and a sabre balanced on your right? Huh! I think so, replied Passepartout, recalling the exercises of his younger days. Well, that's enough said the Honourable William Battlecar. The engagement was concluded there and then. Passepartout had at last found something to do. He was engaged to act in the celebrated Japanese troupe. It was not a very dignified position, but within a week he would be on his way to San Francisco. The performance, so noisily announced by the Honourable Mr. Battlecar, was to commence at three o'clock and soon the deafening instruments of a Japanese orchestra resounded at the door. Passepartout, though he had not been able to study or rehearse a part, was designated to lend the aid of his sturdy shoulders in the great exhibition of the Human Pyramid, executed by the long noses of the god Tingu. This great attraction was to close the performance. Before three o'clock the large shed was invaded by the spectators, comprising Europeans and natives, Chinese and Japanese, men, women, and children, who precipitated themselves upon the narrow benches and into the boxes opposite the stage. The musicians took up of tam-tams, flutes, bones, tambourines, and immense drums. The performance was much like all acrobatic displays, but it must be confessed that the Japanese are the first equilibrists in the world. One, with a fan and some bits of paper, performed the graceful trick of the butterflies and the flowers. Another traced in the air, with the odorous smoke of his pipe, a series of blue words, which composed a compliment to the audience, while a third juggled with some lighted candles, which he extinguished successively as they passed his lips, and relit again without interrupting for an instant his juggling. Another reproduced the most singular combinations with a spinning top. In his hands the revolving tops seemed to be animated with a life of their own in their interminable whirling. They ran over pipe-stems, the edges of sabres, wires, and even hairs stretched across the stage. They turned around on the edges of large glasses crossed bamboo ladders, dispersed into all the corners, and produced strange musical effects by the combination of their various pitches of tone. The jugglers tossed them in the air, threw them like shuttlecocks with wooden battledoors, and yet they kept on spinning. 
they put them into their pockets and took them out still whirling as before it is useless to describe the astonishing performance of the acrobats and gymnasts the turning on ladders poles balls barrels etc was executed with wonderful precision but the principal attraction was the exhibition of the long noses a show to which europe is as yet a stranger the long noses form a peculiar company under the direct patronage of the god tingu attired after the fashion of the middle ages they bore upon their shoulders a splendid pair of wings but what especially distinguished them was the long noses which were fastened to their faces and the uses which they made of them these noses were made of bamboo and were five six and even ten feet long some straight others curved some ribboned and some having imitation warts upon them it was upon these appendages fixed tightly on their real noses that they performed their gymnastic exercises a dozen of these sectaries of tingu lay flat upon their backs while others dressed to represent lightning rods came and frolicked on their noses jumping from one to another and performing the most skilful leapings and somersaults as a last scene a human pyramid had been announced in which fifty long noses were to represent the car of juggernaut but instead of forming a pyramid by mounting each other's shoulders the artists were to group themselves on top of the noses it happened that the performer who had hitherto formed the base of the car had quitted the troop and as to fill this part only strength and adroitness were necessary passepartout had been chosen to take his place the poor fellow really felt sad when melancholy reminiscence of his youth he donned his costume adorned with vari-coloured wings and fastened to his natural feature a false nose six feet long but he cheered up when he thought that this nose was winning him something to eat he went upon the stage and took his place beside the rest who were to compose the base of the car of juggernaut they all stretched themselves on the floor their noses pointing to the ceiling a second group of artists disposed themselves on these long appendages then a third above these then a fourth until a human monument reaching to the very cornices of the theatre soon arose on top of the noses this elicited loud applause in the midst of which the orchestra was just striking up a deafening air when the pyramid tottered the balance was lost one of the lower noses vanished from the pyramid and the human monument was shattered like a castle built of cards it was passepartout's fault abandoning his position clearing the footlights without the aid of his wings and clambering up to the right-hand gallery he fell at the feet of one of the spectators crying ah my master my master you here myself very well then let us go to the steamer young man mr fogg aouda and passepartout passed through the lobby of the theatre to the outside where they encountered the honourable mr battlecar furious with rage he demanded damages for the breakage of the pyramid and phileas fogg appeased him by giving him a handful of banknotes at half-past six the very hour of departure mr fogg and aouda followed by passepartout who in his hurry had retained his wings and nose six feet long stepped upon the american steamer End of chapter.
Chapter Twenty Four of Around the World in Eighty Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne. Chapter Twenty Four during which Mr. Fogg and party crossed the Pacific Ocean. What happened when the pilot boat came in sight of Shanghai will be easily guessed. The signals made by the Tankadere had been seen by the captain of the Yokohama steamer, who, espying the flag at half-mast, had directed his course towards the little craft. Phileas Fogg, after paying the stipulated price of his passage to John Busby, and rewarding that worthy with the additional sum of five hundred and fifty pounds, ascended the steamer with Aouda and Fix, and they started at once for Nagasaki and Yokohama. They reached their destination on the morning of the 14th of November. Phileas Fogg lost no time in going on board the Carnatic, where he learned, to Aouda's great delight, and perhaps to his own, though he betrayed no emotion, that Passepartout, a Frenchman, had really arrived on her the day before. The San Francisco steamer was announced to leave that very evening, and it became necessary to find Passepartout, if possible, without delay. Mr. Fogg applied in vain to the French and English consuls, and, after wandering through the streets a long time, began to despair of finding his missing servant. Chance, or perhaps a kind of presentiment, at last led him into the Honourable Mr. Battlecar's theatre. He certainly would not have recognised Passepartout in the eccentric mountebank's costume, but the latter, lying on his back, perceived his master in the gallery. He could not help starting, which so changed the position of his nose as to bring the pyramid pell-mell upon the stage. All this Passepartout learned from Aouda who recounted to him what had taken place on the voyage from Hong Kong to Shanghai on the Tankadere, in company with one Mr. Fix. Passepartout did not change countenance on hearing this name. He thought that the time had not yet arrived to divulge to his master what had taken place between the detective and himself, and, in the account he gave of his absence, he simply excused himself for having been overtaken by drunkenness in smoking opium at a tavern in Hong Kong. Mr. Fogg heard this narrative coldly, without a word, and then furnished his man with funds necessary to obtain clothing more in harmony with his position. Within an hour the Frenchman had cut off his nose and parted with his wings, and retained nothing about him which recalled the sectary of the god Tingu. The steamer which was about to depart from Yokohama to San Francisco belonged to the Pacific Mail Steamship Company, and was named the General Grant. She was a large paddle-wheel steamer of two thousand five hundred tons, well equipped and very fast. The massive walking beam rose and fell above the deck. At one end a piston-rod worked up and down, and at the other was a connecting-rod which, in changing the rectilinear motion to a circular one, was directly connected with the shaft of the paddles. The General Grant was rigged with three masts, giving a large capacity for sails, and thus materially aiding the steam-power. By making twelve miles an hour she would cross the ocean in twenty-one days. 
Phileas Fogg was therefore justified in hoping that he would reach San Francisco by the 2nd of December, New York by the 11th, and London on the 20th, thus gaining several hours on the fatal date of the 21st of December. There was a full complement of passengers on board, among them English, many Americans, a large number of coolies on their way to California, and several East Indian officers, who were spending their vacation in making the tour of the world. Nothing of moment happened on the voyage. The steamer, sustained on its large paddles, rolled but little, and the Pacific almost justified its name. Mr. Fogg was as calm and taciturn as ever. His young companion felt herself more and more attached to him by other ties than gratitude. His silent but generous nature impressed her more than she thought, and it was almost unconsciously that she yielded to emotions which did not seem to have the least effect upon her protector. Aouda took the keenest interest in his plans, and became impatient at any instant which seemed likely to retard his journey. She often chatted with Passepartout, who did not fail to perceive the state of the lady's heart, and, being the most faithful of domestics, he never exhausted his eulogies of Phileas Fogg's honesty, generosity, and devotion. He took pains to calm Aouda's doubts of a successful termination of the journey, telling her that the most difficult part of it had passed, that now they were beyond the fantastic countries of Japan and China, and were fairly on their way to civilized places again. A railway train from San Francisco to New York, and a transatlantic steamer from New York to Liverpool, would doubtless bring them to the end of this impossible journey round the world within the period agreed upon. On the ninth day after leaving Yokohama, Phileas Fogg had traversed exactly one-half of the terrestrial globe. The General Grant passed, on the 23rd of November, the 180th meridian, and was at the very antipodes of London. Mr. Fogg had, it is true, exhausted fifty-two of the eighty days in which he was to complete the tour, and there were only twenty-eight left. But, though he was only half-way by the difference of meridians, he had really gone over two-thirds of the whole journey, for he had been obliged to make long circuits from London to Aden, from Aden to Bombay, from Calcutta to Singapore, and from Singapore to Yokohama. Could he have followed without deviation the fiftieth parallel, which is that of London, the whole distance would only have been about twelve thousand miles whereas he would be forced, by the irregular methods of locomotion, to traverse twenty-six thousand, of which he had, on the twenty-third of November, accomplished seventeen thousand five hundred. And now the course was a straight one, and Fix was no longer there to put obstacles in their way. It happened also, on the twenty-third of November, that Passepartout made a joyful discovery. It will be remembered that the obstinate fellow had insisted on keeping his famous family watch at London time, and on regarding that of the countries he had passed through as quite false and unreliable. Now on this day, though he had not changed the hands, he found that his watch exactly agreed with the ship's chronometers. His triumph was hilarious. He would have liked to know what Fix would say if he were aboard. The rogue told me a lot of stories, repeated Passepartout, about the meridians, the sun, and the moon. Moon, indeed. Moonshine, more likely. 
if one listened to that sort of people, a pretty sort of time one would keep. I am sure that the sun would some day regulate itself by my watch." Passepartout was ignorant that, if the face of his watch had been divided into twenty-four hours, like the Italian clocks, he would have no reason for exultation, for the hands of his watch would then, instead of, as now, recording nine o'clock in the morning, indicate nine o'clock in the evening, that is, the twenty-first hour after midnight, precisely the difference between London time and that of the one hundred and eightieth meridian. But if Fix had been able to explain this purely physical effect, Passepartout would not have admitted, even if he had comprehended it. Moreover, if the detective had been on board at that moment, Passepartout would have joined issue with him on a quite different subject, and in an entirely different manner. Where was Fix at that moment? He was actually on board the General Grant. On reaching Yokohama, the detective, leaving Mr. Fogg, whom he expected to meet again during the day, had repaired at once to the English consulate, where he at last found a warrant of arrest. It had followed him from Bombay, and had come by the Carnatic, on which steamer he himself was supposed to be. Fix's disappointment may be imagined when he reflected that the warrant was now useless. Mr. Fogg had left English ground, and it was now necessary to procure his extradition. "'Well,' thought Fix, after a moment of anger, "'my warrant is not good here, but it will be in England. The rogue evidently intends to return to his own country, thinking he has thrown the police off his track. Good! I will follow him across the Atlantic. As for the money, heaven grant there may be some left.' but the fellow is already spent in travelling, rewards, trials, bail, elephants, and all sorts of charges more than five thousand pounds. Yet, after all, the bank is rich." His course decided on, he went on board the General Grant, and was there when Mr. Fogg and Aouda arrived. To his utter amazement he recognized Passepartout, despite his theatrical disguise. He quickly concealed himself in his cabin, to avoid an awkward explanation, and hoped, thanks to the number of passengers, to remain unperceived by Mr. Fogg's servant. On that very day, however, he met Passepartout face to face on the forward deck. The latter, without a word, made a rush for him, grasped him by the throat, and, much to the amusement of a group of Americans, who immediately began to bet on him, administered to the detective a perfect volley of blows, which proved the great superiority of French over English pugilistic skill. When Passepartout had finished, he found himself relieved and comforted. Fix got up in a somewhat rumpled condition, and, looking at his adversary, coldly said, "'Have you done?' "'For this time, yes.' "'Then let me have a word with you.' but I, in your master's interests." Passepartout seemed to be vanquished by Fix's coolness, for he quietly followed him, and they sat down aside from the rest of the passengers. "'You have given me a thrashing,' said Fix. "'Good. I expected it. Now listen to me. Up to this time I have been Mr. Fogg's adversary. I am now in his game. 
"'Ah, ha!' cried Passepartout. "'You are convinced he is an honest man?' "'No,' replied Fix coldly. "'I think him a rascal. Shh, don't budge, and let me speak.' As long as Mr. Fogg was on English ground, it was for my interest to detain him there until my warrant of arrest arrived. I did everything I could to keep him back. I sent the Bombay priests after him. I got you intoxicated at Hong Kong. I separated you from him, and I made him miss the Yokohama steamer. Passepartout listened with closed fists. Now, resumed Fix. Mr. Fogg seems to be going back to England. Well, I will follow him there. But hereafter I will do as much to keep obstacles out of his way, as I have done up to this time to put them in his path. I've changed my game, you see, and simply because it was for my interest to change it. Your interest is the same as mine, for it is only in England that you will ascertain whether you are in the service of a criminal or an honest man. Passepartout listened very attentively to Fix, and was convinced that he spoke with entire good faith. "'Are we friends?' asked the detective. "'Friends? No,' replied Passepartout. "'But allies, perhaps. At the least sign of treason, however, I'll twist your neck for you.' "'Agreed,' said the detective quietly. Eleven days later, on the 3rd of December, the General Grant entered the Bay of the Golden Gate, and reached San Francisco. Mr. Fogg had neither gained nor lost a single day. End of chapter Chapter 25 of Around the World in Eighty Days This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne Chapter 25, in which a slight glimpse is had of San Francisco. It was seven in the morning when Mr. Fogg, Aouda, and Passepartout set foot upon the American continent, if this name can be given to the floating key upon which they disembarked. These keys, rising and falling with the tide, thus facilitate the loading and unloading of vessels. Alongside them were clippers of all sizes, steamers of all nationalities, and the steamboats, with several decks rising one above the other, which ply on the Sacramento and its tributaries. There were also heaped up the products of a commerce which extends to Mexico, Chile, Peru, Brazil, Europe, Asia, and all the Pacific Islands. Passepartout, in his joy on reaching at last the American continent, thought he would manifest it by executing a perilous vault in fine style. But, tumbling upon some worm-eaten planks, he fell through them put out of countenance by the manner in which he thus set foot upon the new world, he uttered a loud cry, which so frightened the innumerable cormorants and pelicans, that are always perched upon these immovable keys, that they flew noisily away. Mr. Fogg, on reaching shore, proceeded to find out at what hour the first train left for New York, and learned that this was at six o'clock p.m., 
He had, therefore, an entire day to spend in the Californian capital. Taking a carriage at a charge of three dollars, he and Aouda entered it, while Passepartout mounted the box beside the driver, and they set out for the International Hotel. From his exalted position Passepartout observed with much curiosity the wide streets, the low, evenly-ranged houses, the Anglo-Saxon Gothic churches, the great docks, the palatial wooden and brick warehouses, the numerous conveyances, omnibuses, horse-cars, and upon the sidewalks not only Americans and Europeans, but Chinese and Indians. Passepartout was surprised at all he saw. San Francisco was no longer the legendary city of 1849, a city of banditti, assassins and incendiaries, who had flocked hither in crowds in pursuit of plunder, a paradise of outlaws, where they gambled with gold dust, a revolver in one hand and a bowie-knife in the other. It was now a great commercial emporium. The lofty tower of its city hall overlooked the whole panorama of the streets and avenues, which cut each other at right angles, and in the midst of which appeared pleasant, verdant squares, while beyond appeared the Chinese quarter, seemingly imported from the celestial empire in a toy-box. Sombreros and red shirts and plumed Indians were rarely to be seen, but there were silk hats and black coats everywhere worn by a multitude of nervously active, gentlemen-looking men. Some of the streets, especially Montgomery Street, which is to San Francisco what Regent Street is to London, the Boulevard des Italiens to Paris, and Broadway to New York, were lined with splendid and spacious stores, which exposed in their windows the products of the entire world. When Passepartout reached the International Hotel, it did not seem to him as if he had left England at all. The ground floor of the hotel was occupied by a large bar a sort of restaurant freely open to all passers-by, who might partake of dried beef, oyster soup, biscuits, and cheese, without taking out their purses. Payment was made only for the ale, porter, or sherry, which was drunk. This seemed very American to Passepartout. The hotel refreshment rooms were comfortable, and Mr. Fogg and Aouda, installing themselves at a table, were abundantly served on diminutive plates by negroes of darkest hue. After breakfast, Mr. Fogg, accompanied by Aouda, started for the English consulate to have his passport visaed. As he was going out, he met Passepartout, who asked him if it would not be well, before taking the train, to purchase some dozens of Enfield rifles and Colt's revolvers. He had been listening to stories of attacks upon the trains by the Sioux and Pawnees. Mr. Fogg thought it a useless precaution, but told him to do as he thought best, and went on to the consulate. He had not proceeded two hundred steps, however, when, by the greatest chance in the world, he met Fix. The detective seemed wholly taken by surprise. What? Had Mr. Fogg and himself crossed the Pacific together? and not met on the steamer. At least Fix felt honoured to behold once more the gentleman to whom he owed so much, and, as his business recalled him to Europe, he should be delighted to continue the journey in such pleasant company. Mr. Fogg replied that the honour would be his, and the detective, who was determined not to lose sight of him, 
begged permission to accompany them in their walk about San Francisco, a request which Mr. Fogg readily granted. They soon found themselves in Montgomery Street, where a great crowd was collected. The sidewalks, street, horse-car rails, the shop-doors, the windows of the houses, and even the roofs were full of people. Men were going about carrying large posters, and flags and streamers were floating in the wind, while loud cries were heard on every hand. Hurrah for Camerfield! Hurrah for Mandeboy! It was a political meeting, at least so Fix conjectured, who said to Mr. Fogg, Perhaps we had better not mingle with the crowd. There may be danger in it. Yes, returned Mr. Fogg, and blows, even if they are political, are still blows. Fix smiled at this remark, and in order to be able to see without being jostled about, the party took up a position on the top of a flight of steps situated at the upper end of Montgomery Street. Opposite them, on the other side of the street, between a coal-wharf and a petroleum warehouse, a large platform had been erected in the open air, towards which the current of the crowd seemed to be directed. For what purpose was this meeting? What was the occasion of this excited assemblage? Phileas Fogg could not imagine. Was it to nominate some high official, a governor, or member of Congress? It was not improbable, so agitated was the multitude before them. Just at this moment there was an unusual stir in the human mass. All the hands were raised in the air. Some, tightly closed, seemed to disappear suddenly in the midst of the cries, an energetic way, no doubt, of casting a vote. The crowd swayed back, the banners and flags wavered, disappeared an instant, then reappeared in tatters. The undulations of the human surge reached the steps, while all the heads floundered on the surface like a sea agitated by a squall. Many of the black hats disappeared, and the greater part of the crowd seemed to have diminished in height. It is evidently a meeting, said Fix, and its object must be an exciting one. I should not wonder if it were about the Alabama, despite the fact that that question is settled. Perhaps, replied Mr. Fogg, simply. At least there are two champions in presence of each other, the Honorable Mr. Camerfield and the Honorable Mr. Mandeboy. Aouda, leaning upon Mr. Fogg's arm, observed the tumultuous scene with surprise, while Fix asked a man near him what the cause of it all was. Before the man could reply, a fresh agitation arose. Hurrahs and excited shouts were heard. The staffs of the banners began to be used as offensive weapons, and fists flew about in every direction. Thumps were exchanged from the tops of the carriages and omnibuses, which had been blocked up in the crowd. Boots and shoes went whirling through the air, and Mr. Fogg thought he even heard the crack of revolvers mingling in the din. The rout approached the stairway, and flowed over the lower step. One of the parties had evidently been repulsed, but the mere lookers-on could not tell whether Mandeboy or Camerfield had gained the upper hand. "'It would be prudent for us to retire,' said Fix, who was anxious that Mr. Fogg should not receive any injury at least until they got back to London. If there is any question about England in all this, and we were recognized, I fear it would go hard with us. An English subject, began Mr. Fogg. 
he did not finish his sentence for a terrific hubbub now arose on the terrace behind the flight of steps where they stood and there were frantic shouts of hurrah for mandeboy hip hip hurrah it was a band of voters coming to the rescue of their allies and taking the Camerfield forces in flank. Mr. Fogg, Aouda, and Fix found themselves between two fires. It was too late to escape. The torrent of men, armed with loaded canes and sticks, was irresistible. Phileas Fogg and Fix were roughly hustled in their attempts to protect their fair companion. The former, as cool as ever, tried to defend herself with the weapons which nature has placed at the end of every Englishman's arm, but in vain. A big brawny fellow, with a red beard, flushed face, and broad shoulders, who seemed to be the chief of the band, raised his clenched fist to strike Mr. Fogg, whom he would have given a crushing blow, had not Fix rushed in and received it in his stead. An enormous bruise immediately made its appearance under the detective's silk hat, which was completely smashed in. "'Yankee!' exclaimed Mr. Fogg, darting a contemptuous look at the ruffian. "'Englishmen,' returned the other, "'we will meet again.' "'When you please. "'What is your name?' "'Phileas Fogg, and yours.' "'Colonel Stamp Proctor.' The human tide now swept by, after overturning Fix, who speedily got upon his feet again, though with tattered clothes. Happily he was not seriously hurt. His travelling overcoat was divided into two unequal parts, and his trousers resembled those of certain Indians, which fit less compactly than they are easy to put on. Aouda had escaped unharmed, and Fix alone bore marks of the fray in his black and blue bruise. "'Thanks,' said Mr. Fogg to the detective, as soon as they were out of the crowd. "'No thanks are necessary,' replied Fix. "'But let us go.' "'Where?' "'To a tailor's.' Such a visit was, indeed, opportune. The clothing of both Mr. Fogg and Fix was in rags, as if they had themselves been actively engaged in the contest between Camerfield and Mandeboy. An hour after, they were once more suitably attired, and with Aouda returned to the International Hotel. Passepartout was waiting for his master, armed with half a dozen six-barreled revolvers. When he perceived Fix, he knit his brows, but Aouda having, in a few words, told him of their adventure, his countenance resumed its placid expression. Fix evidently was no longer an enemy, but an ally, and he was faithfully keeping his word. Dinner over, the coach which was to convey the passengers and their luggage to the station drew up to the door. As he was getting in, Mr. Fogg said to Fix, "'You have not seen this Colonel Proctor again?' "'No.' "'I will come back to America to find him,' said Phileas Fogg calmly. "'It would not be right for an Englishman to permit himself to be treated in that way, without retaliating.' The detective smiled, but did not reply. It was clear that Mr. Fogg was one of those Englishmen who, while they do not tolerate dueling at home, fight abroad when their honour is attacked. At a quarter before six, the travellers reached the station, and found the train ready to depart. As he was about to enter it, Mr. Fogg called a porter, and said to him, "'My friend, was there not some trouble to-day in San Francisco?' 
"'It was a political meeting, sir,' replied the porter. "'But I thought there was a great deal of disturbance in the streets.' "'It was only a meeting assembled for an election.' "'The election of a general-in-chief, no doubt?' asked Mr. Fogg. "'No, sir, of a justice of the peace.' Phileas Fogg got into the train, which started off at full speed. End of chapter Chapter twenty six of Around the World in Eighty Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne. Chapter twenty six in which Phileas Fogg and party travel by the Pacific Railroad. From ocean to ocean, so say the Americans, and these four words compose the general designation of the great trunk line which crosses the entire width of the United States. The Pacific Railroad is, however, really divided into two distinct lines, the Central Pacific, between San Francisco and Ogden, and the Union Pacific, between Ogden and Omaha. Five main lines connect Omaha with New York. New York and San Francisco are thus united by an uninterrupted metal ribbon, which measures no less than 3,786 miles. Between Omaha and the Pacific the railway crosses a territory which is still infested by Indians and wild beasts, and a large tract which the Mormons, after they were driven from Illinois in 1845, began to colonize. The journey from New York to San Francisco consumed, formerly, under the most favorable conditions, at least six months. It is now accomplished in seven days. It was in 1862 that, in spite of the southern members of Congress, who wished a more southerly route, it was decided to lay the road between the 41st and 42nd parallels. President Lincoln himself fixed the end of the line at Omaha, in Nebraska. The work was at once commenced, and pursued with the true American energy, nor did the rapidity with which it went on injuriously affect its good execution. The road grew, on the prairies, a mile and a half a day. A locomotive, running on the rails laid down the evening before, brought the rails to be laid on the morrow, and advanced upon them as fast as they were put in position. The Pacific Railroad is joined by several branches in Iowa, Kansas, Colorado, and Oregon. On leaving Omaha it passes along the left bank of the Platte River as far as the junction of its northern branch, follows its southern branch, crosses the Laramie Territory and the Wasatch Mountains, turns the Great Salt Lake, and reaches Salt Lake City, the Mormon capital, plunges into the Tuila Valley, across the American Desert, Cedar and Humboldt Mountains, the Sierra Nevada, and descends, via Sacramento, to the Pacific, its grade even on the Rocky Mountains never exceeding one hundred and twelve feet to the mile. Such was the road to be traversed in seven days which would enable Phileas Fogg, at least so he hoped, to take the Atlantic steamer at New York on the 11th for Liverpool. 
The car which he occupied was a sort of long omnibus on eight wheels, and with no compartments in the interior. It was supplied with two rows of seats, perpendicular to the direction of the train, on either side of an aisle which conducted to the front and rear platforms. These platforms were found throughout the train, and the passengers were able to pass from one end of the train to the other. It was supplied with saloon cars, balcony cars, restaurants, and smoking cars. Theatre cars alone were wanting, and they will have these some day. Book and news dealers, sellers of edibles, drinkables, and cigars, who seemed to have plenty of customers, were continually circulating in the aisles. The train left Oakland Station at six o'clock. It was already night, cold and cheerless, the heavens being overcast with clouds which seemed to threaten snow. The train did not proceed rapidly, counting the stoppages. It did not run more than twenty miles an hour, which was a sufficient speed, however, to enable it to reach Omaha within its designated time. There was but little conversation in the car, and soon many of the passengers were overcome with sleep. Passepartout found himself beside the detective, but he did not talk to him. After recent events, their relations with each other had grown somewhat cold. There could no longer be mutual sympathy or intimacy between them. Fix's manner had not changed, but Passepartout was very reserved, and ready to strangle his former friend on the slightest provocation. Snow began to fall an hour after they started, a fine snow, however, which happily could not obstruct the train. Nothing could be seen from the windows but a vast white sheet, against which the smoke of the locomotive had a greyish aspect. At eight o'clock a steward entered the car and announced that the time for going to bed had arrived, and in a few minutes the car was transformed into a dormitory. The backs of the seats were thrown back, bedsteads carefully packed were rolled out by an ingenious system, berths were suddenly improvised and each traveller had soon at his disposition a comfortable bed, protected from curious eyes by thick curtains. The sheets were clean, and the pillows soft. It only remained to go to bed and sleep, which everybody did, while the train sped on across the state of California. The country between San Francisco and Sacramento is not very hilly. The Central Pacific, taking Sacramento for its starting point, extends eastward to meet the road from Omaha. The line from San Francisco to Sacramento runs in a northeasterly direction along the American River, which empties into San Pablo Bay. The one hundred and twenty miles between these cities was accomplished in six hours, and towards midnight, while fast asleep, the travelers passed through Sacramento, so that they saw nothing of that important place, the seat of the state government with its fine quays, its broad streets, its noble hotels, squares, and churches. The train, on leaving Sacramento, and passing the junction, Roquelin, Auburn, and Colfax, entered the range of the Sierra Nevada. Cisco was reached at seven in the morning, and an hour later the dormitory was transformed into an ordinary car and the travellers could observe the picturesque beauties of the mountain region through which they were steaming. The railway track wound in and out among the passes, now approaching the mountain sides, now suspended over precipices, avoiding abrupt angles by bold curves, 
plunging into narrow defiles, which seemed to have no outlet. The locomotive, its great funnel emitting a weird light, with its sharp bell, and its cowcatcher extended like a spur, mingled its shrieks and bellowings with the noise of torrents and cascades, and twined its smoke among the branches of the gigantic pines. There were few or no bridges or tunnels on the route. The railway turned around the sides of the mountains, and did not attempt to violate nature by taking the shortest cut from one point to another. The train entered the state of Nevada through the Carson Valley about nine o'clock, going always northeasterly, and at midday reached Reno, where there was a delay of twenty minutes for breakfast. From this point the road, running along Humboldt River, passed northward for several miles by its banks. Then it turned eastward, and kept by the river until it reached the Humboldt Range, nearly at the extreme eastern limit of Nevada. Having breakfasted, Mr. Fogg and his companions resumed their places in the car, and observed the varied landscape which unfolded itself as they passed along the vast prairies, the mountains lining the horizon, and the creeks with their frothy, foaming streams. Sometimes a great herd of buffaloes, massing together in the distance, seemed like a movable dam. These innumerable multitudes of ruminating beasts often form an insurmountable obstacle to the passage of the trains. Thousands of them have been seen passing over the track for hours together, in compact ranks. The locomotive is then forced to stop and wait till the road is once more clear. This happened, indeed, to the train in which Mr. Fogg was travelling. About twelve o'clock a troop of ten or twelve thousand head of buffalo encumbered the track. The locomotive, slackening its speed, tried to clear the way with its cow-catcher, but the mass of animals was too great. The buffaloes marched along with a tranquil gait, uttering now and then deafening bellowings. There was no use of interrupting them, for, having taken a particular direction, nothing can moderate and change their course. It is a torrent of living flesh which no dam could contain. The travellers gazed on this curious spectacle from the platforms, but Phileas Fogg, who had the most reason of all to be in a hurry, remained in his seat, and waited philosophically until it should please the buffaloes to get out of the way. Passepartout was furious at the delay they occasioned, and longed to discharge his arsenal of revolvers upon them. "'What a country!' cried he. "'Mere cattle stop the trains, and go by in a procession, just as if they were not impeding travel. Pas bleu! I should like to know if Mr. Fogg foresaw this mishap in his programme. And here's an engineer who doesn't dare to run the locomotive into this herd of beasts.' The engineer did not try to overcome the obstacle, and he was wise. He would have crushed the first buffaloes, no doubt, with the cow-catcher. But the locomotive, however powerful, would soon have been checked, the train would inevitably have been thrown off the track, and would then have been helpless. The best course was to wait patiently, and regain the lost time by greater speed when the obstacle was removed. The procession of buffaloes lasted three full hours, and it was night before the track was clear. The last ranks of the herd were now passing over the rails, while the first had already disappeared below the southern horizon. It was eight o'clock when the train passed through the defiles of the Humboldt Range, 
and half-past nine when it penetrated Utah, the region of the Great Salt Lake, the singular colony of the Mormons. End of chapter Chapter 27 of Around the World in Eighty Days This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith, of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne Chapter 27 in which Passepartout undergoes, at a speed of twenty miles an hour, a course of Mormon history. During the night of the 5th of December the train ran southeasterly for about fifty miles, then rose an equal distance in a northeasterly direction towards the Great Salt Lake. Passepartout, about nine o'clock, went out upon the platform to take the air. The weather was cold, the heavens grey, but it was not snowing. The sun's disk, enlarged by the mist, seemed an enormous ring of gold, and Passepartout was amusing himself by calculating its value in pounds sterling, when he was diverted from this interesting study by a strange-looking personage who made his appearance on the platform. This personage, who had taken the train at Elko, was tall and dark, with black moustache, black stockings, a black silk hat, a black waistcoat black trousers, a white cravat, and dogskin gloves. He might have been taken for a clergyman. He went from one end of the train to the other, and affixed to the door of each car a notice written in manuscript. Passepartout approached and read one of these notices, which stated that Elder William Hitch, Mormon missionary, taking advantage of his presence on train number 48, would deliver a lecture on Mormonism in car number 117, from eleven to twelve o'clock, and that he invited all who were desirous of being instructed concerning the mysteries of the religion of the Latter-day Saints to attend. "'I'll go,' said Passepartout to himself. He knew nothing of Mormonism except the custom of polygamy, which is its foundation. The news quickly spread through the train, which contained about one hundred passengers, thirty of whom, at most, attracted by the notice, ensconced themselves in car number 117. Passepartout took one of the front seats. Neither Mr. Fogg nor Fix cared to attend. At the appointed hour, Elder William Hitch rose, and, in an irritated voice, as if he had already been contradicted, said, "'I'll tell you that Joe Smith is a martyr, that his brother Hiram is a martyr.' and that the persecutions of the United States government against the prophets will also make a martyr of Brigham Young. Who dares to say the contrary?" No one ventured to gainsay the missionary, whose excited tone contrasted curiously with his naturally calm visage. No doubt his anger arose from the hardships to which the Mormons were actually subjected. The government had just succeeded, with some difficulty, in reducing these independent fanatics to its rule. It had made itself master of Utah, and subjected that territory to the laws of the Union, after imprisoning Brigham Young on a charge of rebellion and polygamy. The disciples of the Prophet had since redoubled their efforts, and resisted, by words at least, the authority of Congress. 
Elder Hitch, as is seen, was trying to make proselytes of the very railway trains. Then, emphasizing his words with his loud voice and frequent gestures, he related the history of the Mormons from biblical times, how that, in Israel, a Mormon prophet of the tribe of Joseph published the annals of the new religion, and bequeathed them to his son Mormon. How many centuries later a translation of this precious book, which was written in Egyptian, was made by Joseph Smith, Jr., a Vermont farmer, who revealed himself as a mystical prophet in 1825, and how, in short, the celestial messenger appeared to him in an illuminated forest, and gave him the annals of the Lord. Several of the audience, not being much interested in the missionary's narrative, here left the car. But Elder Hitch, continuing his lecture, related how Smith, Jr., with his father, two brothers, and a few disciples, founded the Church of the Latter-day Saints, which, adopted not only in America, but in England, Norway and Sweden, and Germany, counts many artisans, as well as men engaged in the liberal professions among its members. How a colony was established in Ohio, a temple erected there at a cost of two hundred thousand dollars, and a town built at Kirkland, how Smith became an enterprising banker, and received from a simple mummy-showman a papyrus scroll written by Abraham and several famous Egyptians. The elder's story became somewhat wearisome, and his audience grew gradually less until it was reduced to twenty passengers. But this did not disconcert the enthusiast, who proceeded with the story of Joseph Smith's bankruptcy in 1837, and how his ruined creditors gave him a coat of tar and feathers his reappearance some years afterward, more honorable and honored than ever, at Independence, Missouri, the chief of a flourishing colony of three thousand disciples, and his pursuit thence by outraged Gentiles, and retirement into the far west. Ten hearers only were now left, among them honest Passepartout, who was listening with all his ears. Thus he learned that, after long persecutions, Smith reappeared in Illinois, and in 1839 founded a community at Nauvoo on the Mississippi, numbering twenty-five thousand souls, of which he became mayor, chief justice, and general-in-chief, that he announced himself in 1843 as a candidate for the presidency of the United States, and that finally, being drawn into ambuscade at Carthage, he was thrown into prison and assassinated by a band of men disguised in masks. Passepartout was now the only person left in the car, and the elder, looking him full in the face, reminded him that, two years after the assassination of Joseph Smith, the inspired prophet, Brigham Young, his successor, left Nauvoo for the banks of the Great Salt Lake, where, in the midst of that fertile region, directly on the route of the emigrants who crossed Utah on their way to California, the new colony, thanks to the polygamy practiced by the Mormons, had flourished beyond expectations. "'And this,' added Elder William Hitch, "'this is why the jealousy of Congress has been roused against us. Why have the soldiers of the Union invaded the soil of Utah? Why has Brigham Young, our chief, been imprisoned, in contempt of all justice? Shall we yield a force? Never. Driven from Vermont, driven from Illinois, driven from Ohio, driven from Missouri, driven from Utah.' we shall yet find some independent territory on which to plant our tents. And you, my brother," continued the elder, fixing his angry eyes upon his single auditor, 
Will you not plant yours there, too, under the shadow of our flag? No, replied Passepartout courageously, in his turn retiring from the car, and leaving the elder to preach to vacancy. During the lecture the train had been making good progress, and towards half-past twelve it reached the northwest border of the Great Salt Lake. Thence the passengers could observe the vast extent of this interior sea, which is also called the Dead Sea, and to which flows an American Jordan. It is a picturesque expanse, framed in lofty crags and large strata, encrusted with white salt, a superb sheet of water which was formerly of larger extent than now, the shores having encroached with the lapse of time, and thus at once reduced its breadth and increased its depth. The Salt Lake, seventy miles long and thirty-five wide, is situated three miles eight hundred feet above the sea. Quite different from Lake Asphaltite, whose depression is twelve hundred feet below the sea, it contains considerable salt, and one quarter of the weight of its water is solid matter its specific weight being 1.170, and, after being distilled, 1.000. Fishes are, of course, unable to live in it, and those which descend through the Jordan, the Weber, and other streams soon perish. The country around the lake was well cultivated, for the Mormons are mostly farmers, while ranches and pens for domesticated animals, fields of wheat, corn, and other cereals, luxuriant prairies, hedges of wild rose, clumps of acacias and milkwort, would have been seen six months later. Now the ground was covered with a thin powdering of snow. The train reached Ogden at two o'clock, where it rested for six hours. Mr. Fogg and his party had time to pay a visit to Salt Lake City, connected with Ogden by a branch road, and they spent two hours in this strikingly American town, built on the pattern of other cities of the Union, like a checkerboard, with the sombre sadness of right angles, as Victor Hugo expresses it. The founder of the City of the Saints could not escape from the taste for symmetry which distinguishes the Anglo-Saxons. In this strange country, where the people are certainly not up to the level of their institutions, everything is done squarely. Cities, houses, and follies. The travellers, then, were promenading, at three o'clock, about the streets of the town built between the banks of the Jordan and the spurs of the Wasatch Range. They saw few or no churches, but the Prophet's Mansion, the Courthouse, and the Arsenal, blue brick houses with verandas and porches, surrounded by gardens bordered with acacias, palms, and locusts. A clay and pebble wall, built in 1853, surrounded the town, and in the principal street were the market and several hotels adorned with pavilions. The place did not seem thickly populated. The streets were almost deserted, except in the vicinity of the temple, which they only reached after having traversed several quarters surrounded by palisades. There were many women, which was easily accounted for by the peculiar institution of the Mormons, but it must not be supposed that all the Mormons are polygamists. They are free to marry or not, as they please, but it is worth noting that it is mainly the female citizens of Utah who are anxious to marry, as, according to the Mormon religion, maiden ladies are not admitted to the possession of its highest joys. These poor creatures seem to be neither well-off nor happy. Some, the more well-to-do, no doubt, wore short, open, black silk dresses, 
under a hood or modest shawl, others were habited in Indian fashion. Passepartout could not behold without a certain fright these women, charged in groups with conferring happiness on a single Mormon. His common sense pitied, above all, the husband. It seemed to him a terrible thing to have to guide so many wives at once across the vicissitudes of life, and to conduct them, as it were, in a body to the Mormon paradise, with the prospect of seeing them in the company of the glorious Smith, who doubtless was the chief ornament of that delightful place, to all eternity. He felt decidedly repelled from such a vocation, and he imagined, perhaps he was mistaken, that the fair ones of Salt Lake City cast rather alarming glances on his person. Happily, his stay there was but brief. At four the party found themselves again at the station, took their places in the train, and the whistle sounded for starting. Just at the moment, however, that the locomotive wheels began to move, cries of, STOP! STOP! were heard. Trains, like time and tide, stop for no one. The gentleman who uttered the cries was evidently a belated Mormon. He was breathless with running. Happily for him the station had neither gates nor barriers. He rushed along the track, jumped on the rear platform of the train, and fell exhausted into one of the seats. Passepartout, who had been anxiously watching this amateur gymnast, approached him with lively interest, and learned that he had taken flight after an unpleasant domestic scene. When the Mormon had recovered his breath, Passepartout ventured to ask him politely how many wives he had, for, from the manner in which he had decamped, it might be thought that he had twenty at least. "'One, sir,' replied the Mormon, raising his arms heavenward, "'one, and that was enough.'" End of chapter Chapter Twenty Eight of Around the World in Eighty Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne. CHAPTER Twenty Eight, IN WHICH PASSEPARTOUT DOES NOT SUCCEED IN MAKING ANYBODY LISTEN TO REASON. The train, on leaving Great Salt Lake at Ogden, passed northward for an hour as far as Weber River, having completed nearly nine hundred miles from San Francisco. From this point it took an easterly direction towards the jagged Wasatch Mountains. It was in this section included between this range and the Rocky Mountains that the American engineers found the most formidable difficulties in laying the road, and that the government granted a subsidy of $48,000 per mile, instead of 16000 allowed for the work done on the plains. But the engineers, instead of violating nature, avoided its difficulties by winding around instead of penetrating the rocks. One tunnel only, 14,000 feet in length, was pierced in order to arrive at the Great Basin. The track up to this time had reached its highest elevation at the Great Salt Lake. From this point it described a long curve, descending towards Bitter Creek Valley, to rise again to the dividing ridge of the waters between the Atlantic and the Pacific. 
There were many creeks in this mountainous region, and it was necessary to cross Muddy Creek, Green Creek, and others upon culverts. Passepartout grew more and more impatient as they went on, while Fix longed to get out of this difficult region, and was more anxious than Phileas Fogg himself to be beyond the danger of delays and accidents, and set foot on English soil. At ten o'clock at night the train stopped at Fort Bridger Station, and twenty minutes later entered Wyoming Territory, following the valley of Bitter Creek throughout. The next day, 7th December, they stopped for a quarter of an hour at Green River Station. Snow had fallen abundantly during the night, but, being mixed with rain, it had half-melted and did not interrupt their progress. The bad weather, however, annoyed Passepartout, for the accumulation of snow, by blocking the wheels of the cars, would certainly have been fatal to Mr. Fogg's tour. "'What an idea!' he said to himself. "'Why did my master take this journey in winter? Couldn't he have waited for the good season to increase his chances?' While the worthy Frenchman was absorbed in the state of the sky and the depression of the temperature, Aouda was experiencing fears from a totally different cause. Several passengers had got off at Green River, and were walking up and down the platforms, and among these Aouda recognized Colonel Stamp Proctor, the same who had grossly insulted Phileas Fogg at the San Francisco meeting. Not wishing to be recognized, the young woman drew back from the window, feeling much alarm at her discovery. She was attached to the man who, however coldly, gave her daily evidences of the most absolute devotion. She did not comprehend, perhaps, the depth of the sentiment with which her protector inspired her, which she called gratitude, but which, though she was unconscious of it, was really more than that. Her heart sank within her when she recognized the man whom Mr. Fogg desired, sooner or later, to call to account for his conduct. Chance alone, it was clear, had brought Colonel Proctor on this train. But there he was, and it was necessary, at all hazards, that Phileas Fogg should not perceive his adversary. Aouda seized a moment when Mr. Fogg was asleep to tell Fix and Passepartout whom she had seen. "'That Proctor on this train!' cried Fix. "'Well, reassure yourself, madam. Before he settles with Mr. Fogg he has got to deal with me. It seems to me that I was the more insulted of the two. "'And besides,' added Passepartout, "'I'll take charge of him, Colonel, as he is.' "'Mr. Fix,' resumed Aouda, "'Mr. Fogg will allow no one to avenge him. He said that he would come back to America to find this man. Should he perceive Colonel Proctor, we could not prevent a collision which might have terrible results. He must not see him.' "'You're right, madam,' replied Fix. A meeting between them might ruin all. Whether he was victorious or beaten, Mr. Fogg would be delayed, and—and, added Passepartout, that would play the game of the gentlemen of the Reform Club. In four days we shall be in New York. Well, if my master does not leave this car during those four days, we may hope that chance will not bring him face to face with this confounded American. We must, if possible, prevent his stirring out of it. The conversation dropped. Mr. Fogg had just woke up and was looking out of the window. Soon after, Passepartout, without being heard by his master or Aouda, whispered to the detective, 
Would you really fight for him? I would do anything, replied Fix, in a tone which betrayed determined will, to get him back living to Europe. Passepartout felt something like a shudder shoot through his frame, but his confidence in his master remained unbroken. Was there any means of detaining Mr. Fogg in the car, to avoid a meeting between him and the Colonel? It ought not to be a difficult task, since that gentleman was naturally sedentary and little curious. The detective, at least, seemed to have found a way, for after a few moments he said to Mr. Fogg, "'These are long and slow hours, sir, that we are passing on the railway.' "'Yes,' replied Mr. Fogg, "'but they pass.' "'You were in the habit of playing whist,' resumed Fix, "'on the steamers.' "'Yes, but it would be difficult to do so here. I have neither cards nor partners.' "'Oh, but we can easily buy some cards, for they are sold on all the American trains. And as for partners, if Madame plays—' "'Certainly, sir,' Aouda quickly replied. "'I understand whist. It is part of an English education.' I myself have some pretensions to playing a good game. Well, here are three of us, and a dummy—' "'As you please, sir,' replied Phileas Fogg, heartily glad to resume his favourite pastime even on the railway. Passepartout was dispatched in search of the steward, and soon returned with two packs of cards, some pins, counters, and a shelf covered with cloth. The game commenced. Aouda understood whist sufficiently well, and even received some compliments on her playing from Mr. Fogg. As for the detective, he was simply an adept, and worthy of being matched against his present opponent. Now, thought Passepartout, we've got him. He won't budge. At eleven in the morning the train had reached the dividing ridge of the waters at Bridger Pass, seven thousand five hundred and twenty-four feet above the level of the sea one of the highest points attained by the track in crossing the Rocky Mountains. After going about two hundred miles, the travellers at last found themselves on one of those vast plains which extend to the Atlantic, and which nature has made so propitious for laying the iron road. On the declivity of the Atlantic basin the first streams, branches of the North Platte River, already appeared. The whole northern and eastern horizon was bounded by the immense semicircular curtain which is formed by the southern portion of the Rocky Mountains, the highest being Laramie Peak. Between this and the railway extended vast plains, plentifully irrigated. On the right rose the lower spurs of the mountainous mass which extends southward to the sources of the Arkansas River, one of the great tributaries of the Missouri. At half-past twelve the travellers caught sight, for an instant, of Fort Halleck, which commands that section, and in a few more hours the Rocky Mountains were crossed. There was reason to hope, then, that no accident would mark the journey through this difficult country. The snow had ceased falling, and the air became crisp and cold. Large birds, frightened by the locomotive, rose and flew off in the distance. No wild beast appeared on the plain, it was a desert in its vast nakedness. After a comfortable breakfast served in the car, Mr. Fogg and his partners had just resumed whist, when a violent whistling was heard, and the train stopped. Passepartout put his head out of the door, but saw nothing to cause the delay. No station was in view. 
Aouda and Fix feared that Mr. Fogg might take it into his head to get out, but that gentleman contented himself with saying to his servant, "'See what is the matter.' Passepartout rushed out of the car. Thirty or forty passengers had already descended, amongst them Colonel Stamp Proctor. The train had stopped before a red signal which blocked the way. The engineer and conductor were talking excitedly with the signalman, whom the station-master at Medicine Bow, the next stopping-place, had sent on before. The passengers drew round and took part in the discussion, in which Colonel Proctor, with his insolent manner, was conspicuous. Passepartout, joining the group, heard the signalman say, "'No, you can't pass. The bridge at Medicine Bow is shaky, and would not bear the weight of the train.' This was a suspension bridge thrown over some rapids, about a mile from the place where they now were. According to the signalman it was in a ruinous condition, several of the iron wires being broken, and it was impossible to risk the passage. He did not in any way exaggerate the condition of the bridge. It may be taken for granted that, rash as the Americans usually are, when they are prudent, there is good reason for it. Passepartout, not daring to apprise his master of what he heard, listened with set teeth, immovable as a statue. "'Huh!' cried Colonel Proctor. "'But we are not going to stay here, I imagine, and take root in the snow?' Colonel, replied the conductor, we have telegraphed to Omaha for a train, but it is not likely that it will reach Medicine Bow in less than six hours. Six hours! cried Passepartout. Certainly, returned the conductor. Besides, it will take us as long as that to reach Medicine Bow on foot. But it is only a mile from here, said one of the passengers. Yes, but it's on the other side of the river. "'And can't we cross that in a boat?' asked the Colonel. "'That's impossible. The creek is swelled by the rains. It is a rapid, and we shall have to make a circuit of ten miles to the north to find a ford.' The Colonel launched a volley of oaths, denouncing the railway company and the conductor, and Passepartout, who was furious, was not disinclined to make common cause with him. Here was an obstacle, indeed, which all his master's banknotes could not remove. There was a general disappointment among the passengers, who, without reckoning the delay, saw themselves compelled to trudge fifteen miles over a plain covered with snow. They grumbled and protested, and would certainly have thus attracted Phileas Fogg's attention if he had not been completely absorbed in his game. Passepartout found that he could not avoid telling his master what had occurred, and with hanging head he was turning towards the car, when the engineer, a true Yankee, named Forster, called out, "'Gentlemen, perhaps there is a way, after all, to get over.' "'On the bridge?' asked the passenger. "'On the bridge.' "'With our train?' "'With our train.' Passepartout stopped short, and eagerly listened to the engineer. "'But the bridge is unsafe,' urged the conductor. "'No matter,' replied Forster. "'I think that by putting on the very highest speed we might have a chance of getting over.' "'The devil!' muttered Passepartout. But a number of the passengers were at once attracted by the engineer's proposal, and Colonel Proctor was especially delighted, and found the plan a very feasible one. 
He told stories about engineers leaping their trains over rivers without bridges, by putting on full steam, and many of those present avowed themselves of the engineer's mind. "'We have fifty chances out of a hundred of getting over,' said one. Eighty, ninety. Passepartout was astounded, and though ready to attempt anything to get over Medicine Creek, thought the experiment proposed a little too American. "'Besides,' thought he, "'there's a still more simple way, and it does not even occur to any of these people.' "'Sir,' said he aloud to one of the passengers, "'the engineer's plan seems to me a little dangerous, but—' Eighty chances!' replied the passenger, turning his back on him. "'I know it,' said Passepartout, turning to another passenger, "'but a simple idea—' "'Ideas are of no use,' returned the American, shrugging his shoulders, as the engineer assures us that we can pass. "'Doubtless,' urged Passepartout, "'we can pass, but perhaps it would be more prudent.' "'What! Prudent!' cried Colonel Proctor, whom this word seemed to excite prodigiously. "'At full speed! Don't you see? At full speed!' "'I know, I see,' repeated Passepartout. "'But it would be, if not more prudent, since that word displeases you, at least more natural.' "'Who? What? What's the matter with this fellow?' cried several. The poor fellow did not know to whom to address himself. "'Are you afraid?' asked Colonel Proctor. "'I afraid. Very well. I will show these people that a Frenchman can be as American as they.' "'All aboard!' cried the conductor. "'Yes, all aboard!' repeated Passepartout, and immediately. "'But they can't prevent me from thinking that it would be more natural for us to cross the bridge on foot, and let the train come after.' But no one heard this sage reflection, nor would any one have acknowledged its justice. The passengers resumed their places in the cars. Passepartout took his seat without telling what had passed. The whist-players were quite absorbed in their game. The locomotive whistled vigorously. The engineer, reversing the steam, backed the train for nearly a mile, retiring like a jumper, in order to take a longer leap. Then, with another whistle, he began to move forward. The train increased its speed, and soon its rapidity became frightful. A prolonged screech issued from the locomotive. The piston worked up and down twenty strokes to the second. They perceived that the whole train, rushing on at the rate of a hundred miles an hour, hardly bore upon the rails at all. And they passed over. It was like a flash. No one saw the bridge. The train leaped, so to speak, from one bank to the other, and the engineer could not stop it until it had gone five miles beyond the station. But scarcely had the train passed the river, when the bridge, completely ruined, fell with a crash into the rapids of Medicine Bow. End of chapter Chapter Twenty Nine of Around the World in Eighty Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne. Chapter Twenty Nine 
in which certain incidents are narrated which are only to be met with on American railroads. The train pursued its course that evening without interruption, passing Fort Saunders, crossing Cheyenne Pass, and reaching Evans Pass. The road here attained the highest elevation of the journey, eight thousand and ninety-two feet above the level of the sea. The travellers had now only to descend to the Atlantic by limitless plains levelled by nature. A branch of the Grand Trunk led off southward to Denver, the capital of Colorado. The country round about is rich in gold and silver, and more than fifty thousand inhabitants are already settled there. Thirteen hundred and eighty-two miles had been passed over from San Francisco, in three days and three nights. Four days and four nights more would probably bring them to New York. Phileas Fogg was not as yet behind hand. During the night Camp Wallback was passed on the left. Lodge Pole Creek ran parallel with the road, marking the boundary between the territories of Wyoming and Colorado. They entered Nebraska at eleven, passed near Sedgwick, and touched at Julesburg, on the southern branch of the Platte River. It was here that the Union Pacific Railroad was inaugurated on the 23rd of October, 1867, by the chief engineer, General Dodge. Two powerful locomotives, carrying nine cars of invited guests, among whom were Thomas C. Durant, vice-president of the road, stopped at this point. Cheers were given. The Sioux and Pawnees performed an imitation Indian battle, fireworks were let off, and the first number of the Railway Pioneer was printed by a press brought on the train. Thus was celebrated the inauguration of this great railroad, a mighty instrument of progress and civilization thrown across the desert, and destined to link together cities and towns which do not yet exist. The whistle of the locomotive, more powerful than Amphion's lyre, was about to bid them rise from American soil. Fort McPherson was left behind at eight in the morning, and three hundred and fifty-seven miles had yet to be traversed before reaching Omaha. The road followed the capricious windings of the southern branch of the Platte River, on its left bank. At nine the train stopped at the important town of North Platte, built between the two arms of the river, which rejoin each other around it, and form a single artery, a large tributary, whose waters empty into the Missouri a little above Omaha. The one hundred and first meridian was passed. Mr. Fogg and his partners had resumed their game. No one, not even the dummy, complained of the length of the trip. Fix had begun by winning several guineas, which he seemed likely to lose, but he showed himself a not less eager whist-player than Mr. Fogg. During the morning chance distinctly favoured that gentleman. Trumps and honours were showered upon his hands. Once, having resolved on a bold stroke, he was on the point of playing a spade when a voice behind him said, "'I should play a diamond.' Mr. Fogg, Aouda, and Fix raised their heads, and beheld Colonel Proctor. Stamp Proctor and Phileas Fogg recognized each other at once. "'Ah! It's you, is it, Englishman?' cried the Colonel. "'It's you who are going to play a spade.' "'And who plays it?' replied Phileas Fogg coolly, throwing down the ten of spades. "'Well, it pleases me to have it diamonds,' replied Colonel Proctor, in an insolent tone. 
He made a movement as if to seize the card which had just been played, adding, "'You don't understand anything about whist.' "'Perhaps I do, as well as another,' said Phileas Fogg, rising. "'You have only to try, son of John Bull,' replied the Colonel. Aouda turned pale, and her blood ran cold. She seized Mr. Fogg's arm and gently pulled him back. Passepartout was ready to pounce upon the American, who was staring insolently at his opponent. But Fix got up, and going to Colonel Proctor said, "'You forget that it is I with whom you have to deal, sir, for it was I whom you not only insulted, but struck.' "'Mr. Fix,' said Mr. Fogg, "'pardon me, but this affair is mine, and mine only.' The Colonel has again insulted me by insisting that I should not play a spade, and he shall give me satisfaction for it. "'When and where you will,' replied the American, "'and with whatever weapon you choose.' Aouda in vain attempted to retain Mr. Fogg, as vainly did the detective endeavour to make the quarrel his. Passepartout wished to throw the Colonel out of the window, but a sign from his master checked him. Phileas Fogg left the car, and the American followed him upon the platform. "'Sir,' said Mr. Fogg to his adversary, "'I am in a great hurry to get back to Europe, and any delay whatever will be greatly to my disadvantage.' "'Well, what's that to me?' replied Colonel Proctor. "'Sir,' said Mr. Fogg, very politely, after our meeting at San Francisco, I determined to return to America and find you, as soon as I had completed the business which called me to England. Really? Will you appoint a meeting for six months hence? Why not ten years hence? I say six months, returned Phileas Fogg, and I shall be at the place of meeting promptly. All this is an evasion cried Stamp Proctor. Now or never. Very good. You are going to New York? No. To Chicago? No. To Omaha? What difference is it to you? Do you know Plum Creek? No, replied Mr. Fogg. It's the next station. The train will be there in an hour, and will stop there ten minutes. In ten minutes several revolver shots could be exchanged. "'Very well,' said Mr. Fogg. "'I will stop at Plum Creek.' "'And I guess you'll stay there, too,' added the American insolently. "'Who knows?' replied Mr. Fogg, returning to the car as coolly as usual. He began to reassure Aouda, telling her that blusterers were never to be feared, and begged Fix to be his second at the approaching duel, a request which the detective could not refuse. Mr. Fogg resumed the interrupted game with perfect calmness. At eleven o'clock the locomotive's whistle announced that they were approaching Plum Creek Station. Mr. Fogg rose, and followed by Fix, went out upon the platform. Passepartout accompanied him, carrying a pair of revolvers. Aouda remained in the car, as pale as death. The door of the next car opened, and Colonel Proctor appeared on the platform attended by a Yankee of his own stamp as his second. But just as the combatants were about to step from the train, the conductor hurried up and shouted, "'You can't get off, gentlemen!' "'Why not?' asked the Colonel. "'We are twenty minutes late, and we shall not stop.' 
"'But I'm going to fight a duel with this gentleman.' "'I'm sorry,' said the conductor. "'But we shall be off at once. There's the bell ringing now.' The train started. "'I'm really very sorry, gentlemen,' said the conductor. "'Under any other circumstances I should have been happy to oblige you. But after all, as you have not had time to fight here, why not fight as we go along?' "'That wouldn't be convenient, perhaps, for this gentleman,' said the Colonel, in a jeering tone. "'It would be perfectly so,' replied Phileas Fogg. "'Well, we are really in America,' thought Passepartout, "'and the conductor is a gentleman of the first order.' So muttering, he followed his master. The two combatants, their seconds, and the conductor passed through the cars to the rear of the train. The last car was only occupied by a dozen passengers, whom the conductor politely asked if they would not be so kind as to leave it vacant for a few moments, as two gentlemen had an affair of honour to settle. The passengers granted the request with alacrity, and straightway disappeared on the platform. The car, which was some fifty feet long, was very convenient for their purpose. The adversaries might march on each other in the aisle, and fire at their ease. Never was duel more easily arranged. Mr. Fogg and Colonel Proctor, each provided with two six-barreled revolvers, entered the car. The seconds, remaining outside, shut them in. They were to begin firing at the first whistle of the locomotive. After an interval of two minutes, what remained of the two gentlemen would be taken from the car. Nothing could be more simple. Indeed, it was all so simple that Fix and Passepartout felt their hearts beating as if they would crack. They were listening for the whistle agreed upon, when suddenly savage cries resounded in the air, accompanied by reports which certainly did not issue from the car where the duelists were. The reports continued in front and the whole length of the train. Cries of terror proceeded from the interior of the cars. Colonel Proctor and Mr. Fogg, revolvers in hand, hastily quitted their prison, and rushed forward where the noise was most clamorous. They then perceived that the train was attacked by a band of Sioux. This was not the first attempt of these daring Indians, for more than once they had waylaid trains on the road. A hundred of them had, according to their habit, jumped upon the steps without stopping the train, with the ease of a clown mounting a horse at full gallop. The Sioux were armed with guns, from which came the reports, to which the passengers, who were almost all armed, responded by revolver shots. The Indians had first mounted the engine, and half stunned the engineer and stoker with blows from their muskets. A Sioux chief, wishing to stop the train, but not knowing how to work the regulator, had opened wide, instead of closing, the steam valve and the locomotive was plunging forward with terrific velocity. The Sioux had at the same time invaded the cars, skipping like enraged monkeys over the roofs, thrusting open the doors, and fighting hand to hand with the passengers. Penetrating the baggage car, they pillaged it, throwing the trunks out of the train. The cries and shots were constant. The travellers defended themselves bravely, some of the cars were barricaded, and sustained a siege like moving forts, carried along at a speed of a hundred miles an hour. Aouda behaved courageously from the first. She defended herself like a true heroine with a revolver, which she shot through the broken windows whenever a savage made his appearance. Twenty Sioux had fallen mortally wounded to the ground, 
and the wheels crushed those who fell upon the rails as if they had been worms. Several passengers, shot or stunned, lay on the seats. It was necessary to put an end to the struggle, which had lasted for ten minutes, and which would result in the triumph of the Sioux if the train was not stopped. Fort Kearney Station, where there was a garrison, was only two miles distant, but that once passed, the Sioux would be masters of the train between Fort Kearney and the station beyond. The conductor was fighting beside Mr. Fogg when he was shot and fell. At the same moment he cried, "'Unless the train is stopped in five minutes, we are lost!' "'It shall be stopped,' said Phileas Fogg, preparing to rush from the car. "'Stay, monsieur!' cried Passepartout. "'I will go!' Mr. Fogg had not time to stop the brave fellow, who, opening a door unperceived by the Indians, succeeded in slipping under the car, and while the struggle continued and the balls whizzed across each other over his head, he made use of his old acrobatic experience, and with amazing agility worked his way under the cars, holding on to the chains, aiding himself by the brakes and the edges of the sashes, creeping from one car to another with marvellous skill, and thus gaining the forward end of the train. There, suspended by one hand between the baggage-car and the tender, with the other he loosened the safety-chains, but, owing to the traction, he would never have succeeded in unscrewing the yoking-bar, had not a violent concussion jolted this bar out. The train, now detached from the engine, remained a little behind, whilst the locomotive rushed forward with increased speed. Carried on by the force already acquired, the train still moved for several minutes, but the brakes were worked, and at last they stopped less than a hundred feet from Kearney Station. The soldiers of the fort, attracted by the shots, hurried up. The Sioux had not expected them, and decamped in a body before the train entirely stopped. But when the passengers counted each other on the station platform, several were found missing, among others the courageous Frenchman, whose devotion had just saved them. End of chapter. Chapter Thirty of Around the World in Eighty Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne. Chapter Thirty, in which Phileas Fogg simply does his duty. Three passengers, including Passepartout, had disappeared. Had they been killed in the struggle? Were they taken prisoners by the Sioux? It was impossible to tell. There were many wounded, but none mortally. Colonel Proctor was one of the most seriously hurt. He had fought bravely, and a ball had entered his groin. He was carried into the station with the other wounded passengers, to receive such attention as could be of avail. Aouda was safe, and Phileas Fogg, who had been in the thickest of the fight, had not received a scratch. Fix was slightly wounded in the arm. But Passepartout was not to be found, and tears coursed down Aouda's cheeks. All the passengers had got out of the train, the wheels of which were stained with blood. From the tires and spokes hung ragged pieces of flesh. 
As far as the eye could reach on the white plain behind, red trails were visible. The last Sioux were disappearing in the south, along the banks of the Republican River. Mr. Fogg, with folded arms, remained motionless. He had a serious decision to make. Aouda, standing near him, looked at him without speaking, and he understood her look. If his servant was a prisoner, ought he not to risk everything to rescue him from the Indians? "'I will find him, living or dead,' said he quietly to Aouda. "'Ah, Mr. Mr. Fogg!' cried she, clasping his hands and covering them with tears. "'Living,' added Mr. Fogg, "'if we do not lose a moment.' Phileas Fogg, by this resolution, inevitably sacrificed himself. He pronounced his own doom. The delay of a single day would make him lose the steamer at New York, and his bet would be certainly lost. But as he thought, it is my duty, he did not hesitate. The commanding officer of Fort Kearney was there. A hundred of his soldiers had placed themselves in a position to defend the station, should the Sioux attack it. "'Sir,' said Mr. Fogg to the captain, Three passengers have disappeared.' "'Dead?' asked the captain. "'Dead or prisoners. That is the uncertainty which must be solved. Do you propose to pursue the Sioux?' "'That's a serious thing to do, sir,' returned the captain. "'These Indians may retreat beyond the Arkansas, and I cannot leave the fort unprotected.' "'The lives of three men are in question, sir,' said Phileas Fogg doubtless, but can I risk the lives of fifty men to save three? I don't know whether you can, sir, but you ought to do so. Nobody here, returned the other, has a right to teach me my duty. Very well, said Mr. Fogg, coldly. I will go alone. You, sir, cried Fix, coming up, you go alone in pursuit of the Indians? Would you have me leave this poor fellow to perish? him to whom every one present owes his life, I shall go. "'No, sir, you shall not go alone,' cried the captain, touched in spite of himself. "'No, you are a brave man. Thirty volunteers,' he added, turning to the soldiers. The whole company started forward at once. The captain had only to pick his men. Thirty were chosen, and an old sergeant placed at their head. "'Thanks, captain.' said Mr. Fogg. "'Would you let me go with you?' asked Fix. "'Do as you please, sir. But if you wish to do me a favour, you will remain with Aouda, in case anything should happen to me.' A sudden pallor overspread the detective's face, separate himself from the man whom he had so persistently followed step by step. Leave him to wander about in this desert. Fix gazed attentively at Mr. Fogg, and despite his suspicions and of the struggle which was going on within him, he lowered his eyes before that calm and frank look. "'I will stay,' said he. A few moments after Mr. Fogg pressed the young woman's hand, and, having confided to her his precious carpet-bag, went off with the sergeant and his little squad. But before going he had said to the soldiers, my friends, I will divide five thousand dollars among you if we save the prisoners. It was then a little past noon. Aouda retired to a waiting-room, and there she waited alone, thinking of the simple and noble generosity, 
the tranquil courage of Phileas Fogg. He had sacrificed his fortune, and was now risking his life, all without hesitation, from duty in silence. Fix did not have the same thoughts, and could scarcely conceal his agitation. He walked feverishly up and down the platform, but soon resumed his outward composure. He now saw the folly of which he had been guilty in letting Fogg go alone. What? This man, whom he had just followed around the world, was permitted now to separate himself from him. He began to accuse and abuse himself, and, as if he were director of police, administered to himself a sound lecture for his greenness. "'I have been an idiot,' he thought, "'and this man will see it. He has gone and won't come back. But how is it that I, Fix, who have in my pocket a warrant for his arrest, have been so fascinated by him? Decidedly I am nothing but an ass.' So reasoned the detective, while the hours crept by all too slowly. He did not know what to do. Sometimes he was tempted to tell Aouda all, but he could not doubt how the young woman would receive his confidences. What course should he take? He thought of pursuing fog across the vast white plains. It did not seem impossible that he might overtake him. Footsteps were easily printed on the snow but soon, under a new sheet, every imprint would be effaced. Fix became discouraged. He felt a sort of insurmountable longing to abandon the game altogether. He could now leave Fort Kearney Station and pursue his journey homeward in peace. Towards two o'clock in the afternoon, while it was snowing hard, long whistles were heard approaching from the east. A great shadow, preceded by a wild light, slowly advanced, appearing still larger through the mist, which gave it a fantastic aspect. No train was expected from the east, neither had there been time for the succor asked for by telegraph to arrive. The train from Omaha to San Francisco was not due till the next day. The mystery was soon explained. The locomotive, which was slowly approaching with deafening whistles, was that which, having been detached from the train, had continued its route with such terrific rapidity carrying off the unconscious engineer and stoker. It had run several miles when, the fire becoming low for want of fuel, the steam had slackened, and it had finally stopped an hour after, some twenty miles beyond Fort Kearney. Neither the engineer nor the stoker was dead, and, after remaining for some time in their swoon, had come to themselves. The train had then stopped. The engineer, when he found himself in the desert and the locomotive without cars, understood what had happened. He could not imagine how the locomotive had become separated from the train, but he did not doubt that the train left behind was in distress. He did not hesitate what to do. It would be prudent to continue on to Omaha, for it would be dangerous to return to the train, which the Indians might still be engaged in pillaging. Nevertheless, he began to rebuild the fire in the furnace. The pressure again mounted, and the engineer returned, running backwards to Fort Kearney. This it was which was whistling in the mist. The travellers were glad to see the locomotive resume its place at the head of the train. They could now continue the journey so terribly interrupted. Aouda, on seeing the locomotive come up, hurried out of the station, and asked the conductor, "'Are you going to start?' "'At once, madam.' 
"'But the prisoners, our unfortunate fellow-travellers—' "'I cannot interrupt the trip,' replied the conductor. "'We are already three hours behind time.' "'And when will another train pass here from San Francisco?' "'Tomorrow evening, madam.' "'Tomorrow evening! But then it will be too late. We must wait.' "'It is impossible,' responded the conductor. "'If you wish to go, please get in.' "'I will not go,' said Aouda. Fix had heard this conversation. A little while before, when there was no prospect of proceeding on the journey, he had made up his mind to leave Fort Kearney. But now that the train was there, ready to start, and he had only to take his seat in the car, an irresistible influence held him back. The station platform burned his feet, and he could not stir. The conflict in his mind began again anger and failure stifled him. He wished to struggle on to the end. Meanwhile the passengers and some of the wounded, among them Colonel Proctor, whose injuries were serious, had taken their places in the train. The buzzing of the overheated boiler was heard, and the steam was escaping from the valves. The engineer whistled, the train started, and soon disappeared, mingling its white smoke with the eddies of the densely falling snow. The detective had remained behind. Several hours passed. The weather was dismal, and it was very cold. Fix sat motionless on a bench at the station. He might have been thought asleep. Aouda, despite the storm, kept coming out of the waiting-room, going to the end of the platform, and peering through the tempest of snow as if to pierce the mist that narrowed the horizon around her, and to hear, if possible, some welcome sound. She heard and saw nothing. Then she would return, chilled through, to issue out again after the lapse of a few moments, but always in vain. Evening came, and the little band had not returned. Where could they be? Had they found the Indians, and were they having a conflict with them, or were they still wandering amid the mist? The commander of the fort was anxious, though he tried to conceal his apprehensions, as night approached, the snow fell as plentifully, but it became intensely cold. Absolute silence rested on the plains. Neither flight of bird nor passing of beast troubled the perfect calm. Throughout the night, Aouda, full of sad forebodings, her heart stifled with anguish, wandered about on the verge of the plains. Her imagination carried her far off, and showed her innumerable dangers. What she suffered through the long hours it would be impossible to describe. Fix remained stationary in the same place, but did not sleep. Once a man approached and spoke to him, and the detective merely replied by shaking his head. Thus the night passed. At dawn the half-extinguished disk of the sun rose above a misty horizon, but it was now possible to recognize objects two miles off. Phileas Fogg and the squad had gone southward. In the south all was still vacancy. It was then seven o'clock. The captain, who was really alarmed, did not know what course to take. Should he send another detachment to the rescue of the first? Should he sacrifice more men, with so few chances of saving those already sacrificed? His hesitation did not last long, however. Calling one of his lieutenants, he was on the point of ordering a reconnaissance, when gunshots were heard. 
Was it a signal? The soldiers rushed out of the fort, and half a mile off they perceived a little band returning in good order. Mr. Fogg was marching at their head, and just behind him were Passepartout and the other two travellers, rescued from the Sioux. They had met and fought the Indians ten miles south of Fort Kearney. Shortly before the detachment arrived, Passepartout and his companions had begun to struggle with their captors, three of which the Frenchman had felled with his fists, when his master and the soldiers hastened up to their relief. All were welcomed with joyful cries. Phileas Fogg distributed the reward he had promised to the soldiers, while Passepartout, not without reason, muttered to himself, "'It must certainly be confessed that I cost my master dear.' Fix, without saying a word, looked at Mr. Fogg, and it would have been difficult to analyze the thoughts which struggled within him. As for Aouda, she took her protector's hand and pressed it in her own, too much moved to speak. Meanwhile Passepartout was looking about for the train. He thought he should find it there, ready to start for Omaha, and he hoped that the time lost might be regained. "'The train! The train!' cried he. "'Gone,' replied Fix. "'And when does the next train pass here?' said Phileas Fogg. "'Not till this evening.' "'Ah!' returned the impassable gentleman quietly. End of chapter Chapter 31 of Around the World in Eighty Days this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne. Chapter 31, in which Fix, the detective, considerably furthers the interests of Phileas Fogg. Phileas Fogg found himself twenty hours behind time. Passepartout, the involuntary cause of this delay, was desperate. He had ruined his master. At this moment the detective approached Mr. Fogg, and, looking him intently in the face, said, "'Seriously, sir, are you in great haste?' "'Quite seriously.' "'I have a purpose in asking,' resumed Fix. Is it absolutely necessary that you should be in New York on the 11th, before nine o'clock in the evening, the time that the steamer leaves for Liverpool? It is absolutely necessary. And if your journey had not been interrupted by these Indians, you would have reached New York on the morning of the 11th? Yes, with eleven hours to spare before the steamer left. Good. You are therefore twenty hours behind. Twelve from twenty leaves eight. You must regain eight hours. Do you wish to try to do so? On foot? asked Mr. Fogg. No, on a sledge, replied Fix. On a sledge with sails. A man has proposed such a method to me. It was the man who had spoken to Fix during the night, and whose offer he had refused. Phileas Fogg did not reply at once, but Fix, having pointed out the man, who was walking up and down in front of the station, Mr. Fogg went up to him. An instant after, Mr. Fogg and the American, whose name was Mudge, entered a hut built just below the fort. There Mr. Fogg examined a curious vehicle, 
a kind of frame on two long beams, a little raised in front like the runners of a sledge, and upon which there was room for five or six persons. A high mast was fixed on the frame, held firmly by metallic lashings, to which was attached a large brigandine sail. This mast held an iron stay upon which to hoist a jib-sail. Behind a sort of rudder served to guide the vehicle. It was, in short, a sledge rigged like a sloop. During the winter, when the trains are blocked up by the snow, these sledges make extremely rapid journeys across the frozen plains from one station to another. Provided with more sails than a cutter, and with the wind behind them, they slip over the surface of the prairies with a speed equal, if not superior, to that of the express trains. Mr. Fogg readily made a bargain with the owner of this landcraft. The wind was favourable, being fresh, and blowing from the west. The snow had hardened, and Mudge was very confident of being able to transport Mr. Fogg in a few hours to Omaha. Thence the trains eastward run frequently to Chicago and New York. It was not impossible that the lost time might yet be recovered, and such an opportunity was not to be rejected. Not wishing to expose Aouda to the discomforts of travelling in the open air, Mr. Fogg proposed to leave her with Passepartout at Fort Kearney, the servant taking upon himself to escort her to Europe by a better route and under more favourable conditions. But Aouda refused to separate from Mr. Fogg, and Passepartout was delighted with her decision, for nothing could induce him to leave his master while Fix was with him. It would be difficult to guess the detective's thoughts. Was this conviction shaken by Phileas Fogg's return, or did he still regard him as an exceedingly shrewd rascal, who, his journey round the world completed, would think himself absolutely safe in England? Perhaps Fix's opinion of Phileas Fogg was somewhat modified, but he was nevertheless resolved to do his duty, and to hasten the return of the whole party to England as much as possible. At eight o'clock the sledge was ready to start. The passengers took their places on it, and wrapped themselves up closely in their travelling cloaks. The two great sails were hoisted, and under the pressure of the wind the sledge slid over the hardened snow with a velocity of forty miles an hour. The distance between Fort Kearney and Omaha, as the birds fly, is at most two hundred miles. If the wind held a good, the distance might be traversed in five hours. If no accident happened, the sledge might reach Omaha by one o'clock. What a journey! The travellers, huddled close together, could not speak for the cold, intensified by the rapidity at which they were going. The sledge sped on as lightly as a boat over the waves. When the breeze came skimming over the earth, the sledge seemed to be lifted off the ground by its sails. Mudge, who was at the rudder, kept in a straight line, and by a turn of his hand, checked the lurches which the vehicle had a tendency to make. All the sails were up, and the jib was so arranged as not to screen the brigantine. A topmast was hoisted, and another jib, held out to the wind, added its force to the other sails. Although the speed could not be exactly estimated, the sledge could not be going at less than forty miles an hour. "'If nothing breaks,' said Mudge, "'we shall get there!' Mr. Fogg had made it for Mudge's interest to reach Omaha within the time agreed upon, by the offer of a handsome reward. The prairie, across which the sledge was moving in a straight line, was as flat as a sea. 
it seemed like a vast frozen lake. The railroad which ran through this section ascended from the southwest to the northwest by Great Island, Columbus, an important Nebraska town, Schuyler, and Fremont to Omaha. It followed throughout the right bank of the Platte River. The sledge, shortening this route, took a cord of the arc described by the railway. Mudge was not afraid of being stopped by the Platte River, because it was frozen. The road then was quite clear of obstacles, and Phileas Fogg had but two things to fear, an accident to the sledge, and a change or calm in the wind. But the breeze, far from lessening its force, blew as if to bend the mast, which, however, the metallic lashings held firmly. These lashings, like the cords of a stringed instrument, resounded as if vibrated by a violin-bow. The sledge slid along in the midst of a plaintively intense melody. "'Those chords give the fifth and the octave,' said Mr. Fogg. These were the only words he uttered during the journey. Aouda, cosily packed in furs and cloaks, was sheltered as much as possible from the attacks of the freezing wind. As for Passepartout, his face was as red as the sun's disk when it sets in the mist, and he laboriously inhaled the biting air. With his natural buoyancy of spirits he began to hope again. They would reach New York in the evening, if not on the morning, of the eleventh, and there was still some chances that it would be before the steamer sailed for Liverpool. Passepartout even felt a strong desire to grasp his ally, Fix, by the hand. He remembered that it was the detective who procured the sledge, the only means of reaching Omaha in time. But, checked by some presentiment, he kept his usual reserve. One thing, however, Passepartout would never forget, and that was the sacrifice which Mr. Fogg had made, without hesitation, to rescue him from the Sioux. Mr. Fogg had risked his fortune and his life. No, his servant would never forget that. While each of the party was absorbed in reflections so different, the sledge flew past over the vast carpet of snow. The creeks it passed over were not perceived. Fields and streams disappeared under the uniform whiteness. The plain was absolutely deserted. Between the Union Pacific Road and the branch which unites Kearney with St. Joseph it formed a great uninhabited island. Neither village, station, nor fort appeared. From time to time they sped by some phantom-like tree, whose white skeleton twisted and rattled in the wind. Sometimes flocks of wild birds rose, or bands of gaunt, famished, ferocious prairie wolves ran howling after the sledge. Passepartout, revolver in hand, held himself ready to fire on those which came too near. Had an accident then happened to the sledge, the travellers, attacked by these beasts, would have been in the most terrible danger. But it held on its even course, soon gained on the wolves, and ere long left the howling band at a safe distance behind. About noon Mudge perceived by certain landmarks that he was crossing the Platte River. He said nothing, but he felt certain that he was now within twenty miles of Omaha. In less than an hour he left the rudder and furled his sails, whilst the sledge, carried forward by the great impetus the wind had given it, went on half a mile further with its sails unspread. It stopped at last, and Mudge, pointing to a mass of roofs white with snow, said, "'We have got there!' Arrived! 
arrived at the station which is in daily communication by numerous trains with the Atlantic seaboard. Passepartout and Fix jumped off, stretched their stiffened limbs, and aided Mr. Fogg and the young woman to descend from the sledge. Phileas Fogg generously rewarded Mudge, whose hand Passepartout warmly grasped, and the party directed their steps to the Omaha Railway Station. The Pacific Railroad proper finds its terminus at this important Nebraska town. Omaha is connected with Chicago by the Chicago and Rock Island Railroad, which runs directly east and passes fifty stations. A train was ready to start when Mr. Fogg and his party reached the station, and they only had time to get into the cars. They had seen nothing of Omaha, but Passepartout confessed to himself that this was not to be regretted, as they were not travelling to see the sights. The train passed rapidly across the state of Iowa, by Council Bluffs, Des Moines, and Iowa City. During the night it crossed the Mississippi at Davenport, and by Rock Island entered Illinois. The next day, which was the tenth, at four o'clock in the evening, it reached Chicago, already risen from its ruins, and more proudly seated than ever on the borders of its beautiful Lake Michigan. Nine hundred miles separated Chicago from New York, but trains are not wanting at Chicago. Mr. Fogg passed at once from one to the other, and the locomotive of the Pittsburgh, Fort Wayne, and Chicago Railway left at full speed, as if it fully comprehended that that gentleman had no time to lose. It traversed Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey like a flash, rushing through towns with antique names, some of which had streets and card tracks, but as yet no houses. At last the Hudson came into view, and at a quarter past eleven in the evening of the eleventh, the train stopped in the station on the right bank of the river, before the very pier of the Cunard line. The China for Liverpool had started three-quarters of an hour before. End of chapter Chapter 32 of Around the World in Eighty Days This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne Chapter 32 In Which Phileas Fogg Engages in a Direct Struggle with Bad Fortune The China, in leaving, seemed to have carried off Phileas Fogg's last hope. None of the other steamers were able to serve his projects. De Perrier, of the French Transatlantic Company, whose admirable steamers are equal to any in speed and comfort, did not leave until the 14th. The Hamburg boats did not go directly to Liverpool or London, but to Havre, and the additional trip from Havre to Southampton would render Phileas Fogg's last efforts of no avail. The Inman steamer did not depart till the next day, and could not cross the Atlantic in time to save the wager. Mr. Fogg learned all this in consulting his Bradshaw, which gave him the daily movements of the transatlantic steamers. Passepartout was crushed. It overwhelmed him to lose the boat by three-quarters of an hour. It was his fault, 
for instead of helping his master he had not ceased putting obstacles in his path. And when he recalled all the incidents of the tour, when he counted up the sums expended in pure loss and on his own account, when he thought that the immense stake, added to the heavy charges of this useless journey, would completely ruin Mr. Fogg, he overwhelmed himself with bitter self-accusations. Mr. Fogg, however, did not reproach him, and, on leaving the Cunard Pier, only said, "'We will consult about what is best to-morrow. Come.' The party crossed the Hudson in the Jersey City ferry-boat, and drove in a carriage to the St. Nicholas Hotel, on Broadway. Rooms were engaged, and the night passed, briefly to Phileas Fogg, who slept profoundly, but very long to Aouda and the others, whose agitation did not permit them to rest. The next day was the twelfth of December. From seven in the morning of the twelfth to a quarter before nine in the evening of the twenty-first, there were nine days, thirteen hours, and forty-five minutes. If Phileas Fogg had left in the China one of the fastest steamers on the Atlantic, he would have reached Liverpool, and then London, within the period agreed upon. Mr. Fogg left the hotel alone, after giving Passepartout instructions to await his return, and inform Aouda to be ready at an instant's notice. He proceeded to the banks of the Hudson, and looked about among the vessels moored or anchored in the river, for any that were about to depart. Several had departure signals, and were preparing to put to sea at morning tide, for in this immense and admirable port there is not one day in a hundred that vessels do not set out for every quarter of the globe. But they were mostly sailing vessels, of which, of course, Phileas Fogg could make no use. He seemed about to give up all hope, when he espied, anchored at the battery, a cable's length off at most, a trading vessel, with a screw, well-shaped, whose funnel, puffing a cloud of smoke, indicated that she was getting ready for departure. Phileas Fogg hailed the boat, got into it, and soon found himself on board the Henrietta, iron-hulled, wood-built above. He ascended to the deck and asked for the captain, who forthwith presented himself. He was a man of fifty, a sort of sea-wolf, with big eyes, a complexion of oxidized copper, red hair and thick neck, and a growling voice. "'The captain?' asked Mr. Fogg. "'I am the captain.' "'I am Phyllis Fogg, of London.' "'And I am Andrew Speedy, of Cardiff.' "'You are going to put to sea?' "'In an hour.' "'You are bound for?' "'Bordeaux.' "'And your cargo?' No freight. Going in ballast. Have you any passengers? No passengers. <laughs> Never have passengers. Too much in the way. Is your vessel a swift one? Between eleven and twelve knots. The Henrietta. Well known. Will you carry me and three other persons to Liverpool? To Liverpool? Why not to China? I said Liverpool. No. No? No. I am setting out for Bordeaux, and shall go to Bordeaux. Money is no object? None. The captain spoke in a tone which did not admit of a reply. But the owners of the Henrietta, resumed Phileas Fogg, the owners are myself. 
replied the captain. "'The vessel belongs to me.' "'I will freight it for you.' "'No.' "'I will buy it of you.' "'No.' Phileas Fogg did not betray the least disappointment, but the situation was a grave one. It was not at New York as at Hong Kong, nor with the captain of the Henrietta as with the captain of the Tankadere. Up to this time money had smoothed away every obstacle. Now money failed. Still, some means must be found across the Atlantic, on a boat, unless by balloon, which would have been venturesome, besides not being capable of being put in practice. It seemed that Phileas Fogg had an idea, for he said to the captain, "'Well, will you carry me to Bordeaux?' "'No, not if you paid me two hundred dollars.' "'I offer you two thousand. "'A piece?' "'A piece.' "'And there are four of you?' Four. Captain Speedy began to scratch his head. There were eight thousand dollars to gain, without changing his route, for which it was well worth conquering the repugnance he had for all kinds of passengers. Besides, passengers at two thousand dollars are no longer passengers, but valuable merchandise.' "'I start at nine o'clock,' said Captain Speedy, simply. "'Are you and your party ready?' "'We will be on board at nine o'clock,' replied, no less simply, Mr. Fogg. It was half-past eight. To disembark from the Henrietta, jump into a hack, hurry to the St. Nicholas, and return with Aouda, Passepartout, and even the inseparable fix was the work of a brief time, and was performed by Mr. Fogg with the coolness which never abandoned him. They were on board when the Henrietta made ready to weigh anchor. When Passepartout heard what this last voyage was going to cost, he uttered a prolonged, "Oh!" which extended throughout his vocal gamut. As for Fix, he said to himself that the Bank of England would certainly not come out of this affair well indemnified. When they reached England, even if Mr. Fogg did not throw some handfuls of bank bills into the sea, more than seven thousand pounds would have been spent. End of chapter. Chapter thirty three of Around the World in Eighty Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne Chapter 33 In which Phileas Fogg shows himself equal to the occasion. An hour after, the Henrietta passed the lighthouse which marks the entrance of the Hudson, turned the point of Sandy Hook, and put to sea. During the day she skirted Long Island, passed Fire Island, and directed her course rapidly eastward. At noon the next day a man mounted the bridge to ascertain the vessel's position. It might be thought that this was Captain Speedy. Not the least in the world. It was Phileas Fogg, Esquire. As for Captain Speedy, he was shut up in his cabin under lock and key, and was uttering loud cries, which signified an anger at once pardonable and excessive. What had happened was very simple. Phileas Fogg wished to go to Liverpool, but the captain would not carry him there. 
Then Phileas Fogg had taken passage for Bordeaux, and during the thirty hours he had been on board, had so shrewdly managed with his banknotes that the sailors and stokers, who were only an occasional crew, and were not on the best terms with the captain, went over to him in a body. This was why Phileas Fogg was in command, instead of Captain Speedy, why the captain was a prisoner in his cabin, and why, in short, the Henrietta was directing her course towards Liverpool. It was very clear to see Mr. Fogg manage the craft that he had been a sailor. How the adventure ended will be seen anon. Aouda was anxious, though she said nothing. As for Passepartout, he thought Mr. Fogg's manoeuvre simply glorious. The captain had said, "'Between eleven and twelve knots,' and the Henrietta confirmed his prediction. If, then, for there were ifs still, the sea did not become too boisterous, if the wind did not veer round to the east, if no accident happened to the boat or its machinery, the Henrietta might cross the three thousand miles from New York to Liverpool in the nine days, between the twelfth and the twenty-first of December. It is true that, once arrived, the affair on board the Henrietta, added to that of the Bank of England, might create more difficulties for Mr. Fogg than he imagined or could desire. During the first days they went along smoothly enough. The sea was not very unpropitious, the wind seemed stationary in the northeast, the sails were hoisted, and the Henrietta ploughed across the waves like a real transatlantic steamer. Passepartout was delighted. His master's last exploit, the consequences of which he ignored, enchanted him. Never had the crew seen so jolly and dexterous a fellow. He formed warm friendships with the sailors, and amazed them with his acrobatic feats. He thought they managed the vessel like gentlemen, and that the stokers fired up like heroes. His loquacious good humour infected every one. He had forgotten the past, its vexations and delays. He only thought of the end so nearly accomplished, and sometimes he boiled over with impatience, as if heated by the furnaces of the Henrietta. Often, also, the worthy fellow revolved around Fix, looking at him with a keen, distrustful eye. But he did not speak to him, for their old intimacy no longer existed. Fix, it must be confessed, understood nothing of what was going on. The conquest of the Henrietta, the bribery of the crew, Fogg managing the boat like a skilled seaman, amazed and confused him. He did not know what to think. For, after all, a man who began by stealing fifty-five thousand pounds might end by stealing a vessel, and Fix was not unnaturally inclined to conclude that the Henrietta under Fogg's command was not going to Liverpool at all, but to some part of the world where the robber, turned into a pirate, would quietly put himself in safety. The conjecture was at least a plausible one, and the detective began to seriously regret that he had embarked on the affair. As for Captain Speedy, he continued to howl and growl in his cabin, and Passepartout, whose duty it was to carry him his meals, courageous as he was, took the greatest precautions. Mr. Fogg did not seem even to know that there was a captain on board. On the thirteenth they passed the edge of the banks of Newfoundland, a dangerous locality during the winter especially. There are frequent fogs and heavy gales of wind. 
ever since the evening before the barometer, suddenly falling, had indicated an approaching change in the atmosphere, and during the night the temperature varied, the cold became sharper, and the wind veered to the southeast. This was a misfortune. Mr. Fogg, in order not to deviate from his course, furled his sails and increased the force of the steam, but the vessel's speed slackened, owing to the state of the sea, the long waves of which broke against the stern. She pitched violently, and this retarded her progress. The breeze little by little swelled into a tempest, and it was to be feared that the Henrietta might not be able to maintain herself upright on the waves. Passepartout's visage darkened with the skies, and for two days the poor fellow experienced constant fright. But Phileas Fogg was a bold mariner, and knew how to maintain headway against the sea, and he kept on his course, without even decreasing his steam. The Henrietta, when she could not rise upon the waves, crossed them, swamping her deck, but passing safely. Sometimes the screw rose out of the water, beating its protruding end, when a mountain of water raised the stern above the waves, but the craft always kept straight ahead. The wind, however, did not grow as boisterous as might have been feared. It was not one of those tempests which burst and rush on with a speed of ninety miles an hour. It continued fresh, but unhappily. It remained obstinately in the southeast, rendering the sails useless. The 16th of December was the seventy-fifth day since Phileas Fogg's departure from London, and the Henrietta had not yet been seriously delayed. Half of the voyage was almost accomplished, and the worst localities had been passed. In summer, success would have been well-nigh certain. In winter they were at the mercy of the bad season. Passepartout said nothing, but he cherished hope in secret, and comforted himself with the reflection that, if the wind failed them, they might still count on the steam. On this day the engineer came on deck, went up to Mr. Fogg, and began to speak earnestly with him. Without knowing why it was a presentiment, perhaps Passepartout became vaguely uneasy. He would have given one of his ears to hear with the other what the engineer was saying. He finally managed to catch a few words, and was sure he heard his master say, "'You are certain of what you tell me?' "'Certain, sir,' replied the engineer. "'You must remember that, since we started, we have got up hot fires in all our furnaces, and though we had coal enough to go on short steam from New York to Bordeaux, we haven't enough to go with all steam.' from New York to Liverpool." "'I will consider,' replied Mr. Fogg. Passepartout understood it all. He was seized with mortal anxiety. The coal was giving out. "'Ah! if my master can get over that,' muttered he, "'he'll be a famous man!' He could not help imparting to fix what he had overheard. "'Then you believe that we are really are going to Liverpool?' "'Of course!' "'Ass!' replied the detective, shrugging his shoulders and turning on his heel. Passepartout was on the point of vigorously resenting the epithet, the reason of which he could not for the life of him comprehend. But he reflected that the unfortunate Fix was probably very much disappointed and humiliated in his self-esteem after having so awkwardly followed a false scent around the world, and refrained. 
and now what course would Phileas Fogg adopt? It was difficult to imagine. Nevertheless he seemed to have decided upon one, for that evening he sent for the engineer and said to him, "'Feed all the fires until the coal is exhausted.' A few moments after, the funnel of the Henrietta vomited forth torrents of smoke. The vessel continued to proceed with all steam on, but on the 18th the engineer, as he had predicted, announced that the coal would give out in the course of the day. "'Do not let the fires go down,' replied Mr. Fogg. "'Keep them up to the last. Let the valves be filled.' Towards noon Phileas Fogg, having ascertained their position, called Passepartout, and ordered him to go for Captain Speedy. It was as if the honest fellow had been commanded to unchain a tiger. He went to the poop, saying to himself, "'He will be like a madman!' In a few moments, with cries and oaths, a bomb appeared on the poop-deck. The bomb was Captain Speedy. It was clear that he was on the point of bursting. "'Where are we?' were the first words his anger permitted him to utter. Had the poor man been an apoplectic, he could never have recovered from his paroxysm of wrath. "'Where are we?' he repeated, with purple face. Seven hundred and seven miles from Liverpool,' replied Mr. Fogg, with imperturbable calmness. "'Pirate!' cried Captain Speedy. "'I have sent for you, sir. Pick a rune?' "'Sir,' continued Mr. Fogg, "'to ask you to sell me your vessel.' "'No! By all the devils, no!' "'But I shall be obliged to burn her.' "'Burn the Henrietta!' "'Yes, at least the upper part of her. The coal has given out.' "'Burn my vessel!' cried Captain Speedy, who could scarcely pronounce the words. "'A vessel worth fifty thousand dollars!' Here are sixty thousand, replied Phileas Fogg, handing the captain a roll of bank bills. This had a prodigious effect on Andrew Speedy. An American can scarcely remain unmoved at the sight of sixty thousand dollars. The captain forgot in an instant his anger, his imprisonment, and all his grudges against his passenger. The Henrietta was twenty years old. It was a great bargain. The bomb would not go off after all. Mr. Fogg had taken away the match. "'And I shall still have the iron hull,' said the captain, in a softer tone. "'The iron hull and the engine. Is it agreed?' "'Agreed.' And Andrew Speedy, seizing the banknotes, counted them and consigned them to his pocket. During this colloquy Passepartout was as white as a sheet, and Fix seemed on the point of having an apoplectic fit. Nearly twenty thousand pounds had been expended, and Fogg left the hull and engine to the captain, that is, near the whole value of the craft. It was true, however, that fifty-five thousand pounds had been stolen from the bank. When Andrew Speedy had pocketed the money, Mr. Fogg said to him, "'Don't let this astonish you, sir. You must know that I shall lose twenty thousand pounds, unless I arrive in London by a quarter before nine on the evening of the twenty-first of December.' I missed the steamer at New York, and as you refused to take me to Liverpool—' "'And I did well,' cried Andrew Speedy, "'for I have gained at least forty thousand dollars by it.' He added more sedately, 
Do you know one thing, Captain... Uh, Fogg. Captain Fogg, you've got something of the Yankee about you. And having paid his passenger what he considered a high compliment, he was going away when Mr. Fogg said, The vessel now belongs to me? Certainly, from the keel to the trunk of the mass, all the wood, that is. Very well. Have the interior seats, bunks, and frames pulled down, and burn them. It was necessary to have dry wood to keep the steam up to the adequate pressure, and on that day the poop, cabins, bunks, and the spare deck were sacrificed. On the next day, the 19th of December, the masts, rafts, and spars were burned. The crew worked lustily, keeping up the fires. Passepartout hewed, cut, and sawed away with all his might. There was a perfect rage for demolition. The railings, fittings, the greater part of the deck, and top sides disappeared on the 20th, and the Henrietta was now only a flat hulk. But on this day they sighted the Irish coast and fastnet light. By ten in the evening they were passing Queenstown. Phileas Fogg had only twenty-four hours more in which to get to London. That length of time was necessary to reach Liverpool with all steam on. And the steam was about to give out altogether. Sir, said Captain Speedy, who was now deeply interested in Mr. Fogg's project, I really commiserate you. Everything is against you. We are only opposite Queenstown. Ah, said Mr. Fogg, is that place where we see the lights, Queenstown? Yes. Can we enter the harbour? Not under three hours, only at high tide. Stay, replied Mr. Fogg calmly, without betraying in his features that by a supreme inspiration he was about to attempt once more to conquer ill-fortune. Queenstown is the Irish port at which the transatlantic steamers stop to put off the mails. These mails are carried to Dublin by express trains always held in readiness to start. From Dublin they are sent on to Liverpool by the most rapid boats, and thus gain twelve hours on the Atlantic steamers. Phileas Fogg counted on gaining twelve hours in the same way. Instead of arriving at Liverpool the next evening by the Henrietta, he would be there by noon, and would therefore have time to reach London before a quarter before nine in the evening. The Henrietta entered Queenstown Harbour at one o'clock in the morning, it then being high tide, and Phileas Fogg, after being grasped heartily by the hand by Captain Speedy, left that gentleman on the levelled hulk of his craft, which was still worth half what he had sold it for. The party went on shore at once. Fix was greatly tempted to arrest Mr. Fogg on the spot, but he did not. Why? What struggle was going on within him? Had he changed his mind about his man? Did he understand that he had made a grave mistake? He did not, however, abandon Mr. Fogg. They all got upon the train, which was just ready to start, at half-past one. At dawn of day they were in Dublin and they lost no time in embarking on a steamer which, disdaining to rise upon the waves, invariably cut through them. Phileas Fogg at last disembarked on the Liverpool Quay at twenty minutes before twelve, twenty-first December. He was only six hours distant from London. But at this moment Fix came up, put his hand upon Mr. Fogg's shoulder, and showing his warrant said, "'You are really Phileas Fogg?' 
I am. I arrest you in the Queen's name. End of chapter. Chapter 34 of Around the World in Eighty Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne. Chapter 34 In Which Phileas Fogg at Last Reaches London. Phileas Fogg was in prison. He had been shut up in the custom-house, and he was to be transferred to London the next day. Passepartout, when he saw his master arrested, would have fallen upon Fix had he not been held back by some policeman. Aouda was thunderstruck at the suddenness of an event which she could not understand. Passepartout explained to her how it was that the honest and courageous Fogg was arrested as a robber. The young woman's heart revolted against so heinous a charge, and when she saw that she could attempt to do nothing to save her protector, she wept bitterly. As for Fix, he had arrested Mr. Fogg because it was his duty, whether Mr. Fogg were guilty or not. The thought then struck Passepartout that he was the cause of this new misfortune. Had he not concealed Fix's errand from his master? When Fix revealed his true character and purpose, why had he not told Mr. Fogg? If the latter had been warned, he would no doubt have given Fix proof of his innocence, and satisfied him of his mistake. At least Fix would not have continued his journey at the expense and on the heels of his master, only to arrest him the moment he set foot on English soil. Passepartout wept till he was blind, and felt like blowing his brains out. Aouda and he had remained, despite the cold, under the portico of the custom-house. Neither wished to leave the place, both were anxious to see Mr. Fogg again. That gentleman was really ruined, and that at the moment when he was about to attain his end. This arrest was fatal. Having arrived at Liverpool at twenty minutes before twelve on the twenty-first of December, he had till a quarter before nine that evening to reach the Reform Club, that is, nine hours and a quarter. The journey from Liverpool to London was six hours. If any one at this moment had entered the Custom House, he would have found Mr. Fogg seated, motionless, calm, and without apparent anger, upon a wooden bench. He was not, it is true, resigned, but this last blow failed to force him into an outward betrayal of any emotion. Was he being devoured by one of those secret rages, all the more terrible because contained, and which only burst forth with an irresistible force at the last moment? No one could tell. There he sat, calmly waiting. For what? Did he still cherish hope? Did he still believe, now that the door of this prison was closed upon him, that he would succeed? However that may have been, Mr. Fogg carefully put his watch upon the table, and observed its advancing hands. Not a word escaped his lips, but his look was singularly set and stern. The situation in any event was a terrible one, and might be thus stated. 
If Phileas Fogg was honest, he was ruined. If he was a knave, he was caught. Did escape occur to him? Did he examine to see if there were any practicable outlet from his prison? Did he think of escaping from it? Possibly, for once he walked slowly around the room. But the door was locked, and the window heavily barred with iron rods. He sat down again and drew his journal from his pocket. On the line where these words were written, 21st December, Saturday, Liverpool, he added, 80th day, 11.40 a.m., and waited. The custom-house clock struck one. Mr. Fogg observed that his watch was two hours too fast. Two hours! Admitting that he was, at this moment, taking an express train, he could reach London and the Reform Club by a quarter before nine p.m. His forehead slightly wrinkled. At thirty-three minutes past two he heard a singular noise outside, then a hasty opening of doors. Passepartout's voice was audible, and immediately after that of Fix. Phileas Fogg's eyes brightened for an instant. The door swung open, and he saw Passepartout, Aouda, and Fix, who hurried towards him. Fix was out of breath, and his hair was in disorder. He could not speak. Sir, he stammered. Sir, forgive me. Most unfortunate resemblance. A robber arrested three days ago. You are free. Phileas Fogg was free. He walked to the detective, looked him steadily in the face, and with the only rapid motion he ever made in his life, or which he ever would make, drew back his arms, and with the precision of a machine, knocked Fix down. Well hit! cried Passepartout. Parbleu! That's what you might call a good application of English fists. Fix, who found himself on the floor, did not utter a word. He had only received his deserts. Mr. Fogg, Aouda, and Passepartout left the custom-house without delay, got into a cab, and in a few moments descended at the station. Phileas Fogg asked if there was an express train about to leave for London. It was forty minutes past two. The express train had left thirty-five minutes before. Phileas Fogg then ordered a special train. There were several rapid locomotives on hand, but the railway arrangements did not permit the special train to leave until three o'clock. At that hour Phileas Fogg, having stimulated the engineer by the offer of a generous reward, at last set out towards London with Aouda and his faithful servant. It was necessary to make the journey in five hours and a half, and this would have been easy on a clear road throughout, but there were forced delays, and when Mr. Fogg stepped from the train at the terminus, all the clocks in London were striking ten minutes before nine. Having made the tour of the world, he was behind hand five minutes. He had lost the wager. End of chapter Chapter thirty five of Around the World in Eighty Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. 
Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne Chapter 35 In which Phileas Fogg does not have to repeat his orders to Passepartout twice. The dwellers in Savile Row would have been surprised the next day if they had been told that Phileas Fogg had returned home. His doors and windows were still closed. No appearance of change was visible. After leaving the station, Mr. Fogg gave Passepartout instructions to purchase some provisions, and quietly went to his domicile. He bore his misfortune with his habitual tranquillity. Ruined. And by the blundering of the detective, after having steadily traversed that long journey, overcome a hundred obstacles, braved many dangers, and still found time to do some good on his way, to fail near the goal by a sudden event which he could not have foreseen, and against which he was unarmed. It was terrible. But a few pounds were left of the large sum he had carried with him. There only remained of his fortune the twenty thousand pounds deposited at Bearings, and this amount he owed to his friends of the Reform Club. So great had been the expense of his tour that, even had he won, it would not have enriched him, and it is probable that he had not sought to enrich himself, being a man who rather laid wages for honour's sake than for the stake proposed. But this wager totally ruined him. Mr. Fogg's course, however, was fully decided upon. He knew what remained for him to do. A room in the house in Savile Row was set apart for Aouda, who was overwhelmed with grief at her protector's misfortune. From the words which Mr. Fogg dropped, she saw that he was meditating some serious project. Knowing that Englishmen governed by a fixed idea sometimes resort to the desperate expedient of suicide, Passepartout kept a narrow watch upon his master, though he carefully concealed the appearance of so doing. First of all, the worthy fellow had gone up to his room and had extinguished the gas-burner, which had been burning for eighty days. He had found in the letter-box a bill from the gas-company, and he thought it more than time to put a stop to this expense, which he had been doomed to bear. The night passed. Mr. Fogg went to bed. But did he sleep? Aouda did not once close her eyes. Passepartout watched all night, like a faithful dog, at his master's door. Mr. Fogg called him in the morning, and told him to get Aouda's breakfast, and a cup of tea and a chop for himself. He desired Aouda to excuse him from breakfast and dinner, as his time would be absorbed all day in putting his affairs to rights. In the evening he would ask permission to have a few moments' conversation with the young lady. Passepartout, having received his orders, had nothing to do but obey them. He looked at his imperturbable master, and could scarcely bring his mind to leave him. His heart was full, and his conscience tortured by remorse, for he accused himself more bitterly than ever of being the cause of the irretrievable disaster. Yes, if he had warned Mr. Fogg, and had betrayed Fix's projects to him, his master would certainly not have given the detective passage to Liverpool, and then— Passepartout could hold in no longer. "'My master, Mr. Fogg!' he cried. "'Why do you not curse me? It was my fault that—' "'I blame no one,' 
returned Phileas Fogg, with perfect calmness. Go! Passepartout left the room, and went to find Aouda, to whom he delivered his master's message. Madam, he added, I can do nothing myself, nothing. I have no influence over my master, but you, perhaps. What influence could I have? replied Aouda. Mr. Fogg is influenced by no one. Has he ever understood that my gratitude to him is overflowing? Has he ever read my heart? My friend, he must not be left alone an instant. You say he is going to speak with me this evening? Yes, madam, probably to arrange for your protection and comfort in England. We shall see, replied Aouda, becoming suddenly pensive. Throughout this day, Sunday, the house in Savile Row was as if uninhabited, and Phileas Fogg, for the first time since he had lived in that house, did not set out for his club when Westminster clock struck half-past eleven. Why should he present himself at the reform? His friends no longer expected him there. As Phileas Fogg had not appeared in the saloon on the evening before, Saturday, the twenty-first of December, at a quarter before nine, he had lost his wager. It was not even necessary that he should go to his bankers for the twenty thousand pounds, for his antagonists already had his cheque in their hands, and they had only to fill it out and send it to the bearings to have the amount transferred to their credit. Mr. Fogg, therefore, had no reason for going out, and so he remained at home. He shut himself up in his room, and busied himself putting his affairs in order. Passepartout continually ascended and descended the stairs. The hours were long for him. He listened at his master's door, and looked through the keyhole as if he had a perfect right to do so, and as if he feared that something terrible might happen at any moment. Sometimes he thought of Fix, but no longer in anger. Fix, like all the world, had been mistaken in Phileas Fogg, and had only done his duty in tracking and arresting him, while he, Passepartout, this thought haunted him and he never ceased cursing his miserable folly. Finding himself too wretched to remain alone, he knocked at Aouda's door, went into her room, seated himself, without speaking, in a corner, and looked ruefully at the young woman. Aouda was still pensive. About half-past seven in the evening Mr. Fogg sent to know if Aouda would receive him, and in a few moments he found himself alone with her. Phileas Fogg took a chair and sat down near the fireplace, opposite Aouda. No emotion was visible on his face. Fogg returned was exactly the Fogg who had gone away. There was the same calm, the same impassibility. He sat several minutes without speaking, then, bending his eyes on Aouda, "'Madam,' said he, "'will you pardon me for bringing you to England?' "'I, Mr. Fogg!' replied Aouda, checking the pulsations of her heart. "'Please let me finish,' returned Mr. Fogg. "'When I decided to bring you far away from the country which was so unsafe for you, I was rich, and counted on putting a portion of my fortune at your disposal. Then your existence would have been free and happy. But now I am ruined.' "'I know it, Mr. Fogg,' replied Aouda 
and I ask you in my turn, will you forgive me for having followed you and, who knows, for having, perhaps, delayed you and thus contributed to your ruin? Madam, you could not remain in India, and your safety could only be assured by bringing you to such a distance that your persecutors could not take you. So, Mr. Fogg, resumed Aouda, not content with rescuing me from a terrible death, you thought yourself bound to secure my comfort in a foreign land? Yes, madam, but circumstances have been against me. Still I beg to place the little I have left at your service. But what will become of you, Mr. Fogg? As for me, madam, replied the gentleman coldly, I have need of nothing. But how do you look upon the fate, sir, which awaits you? As I am in the habit of doing. At least, said Aouda, want should not overtake a man like you. Your friends— I have no friends, madam. Your relatives— I have no longer any relatives. I pity you, then, Mr. Fogg, for solitude is a sad thing with no heart to which to confide your griefs. They say, though, that misery itself, shared by two sympathetic souls, may be borne with patience. They say so, madam. Mr. Fogg, said Aouda, rising and seizing his hand, do you wish at once a kinswoman and friend? Will you have me for your wife? Mr. Fogg, at this, rose in his turn. There was an unwanted light in his eyes, and a slight trembling of his lips. Aouda looked into his face. The sincerity, rectitude, firmness, and sweetness of this soft glance of a noble woman, who could dare all to save him to whom she owed all, at first astonished, then penetrated him. He shut his eyes for an instant, as if to avoid her look. When he opened them again, "'I love you,' he said simply. "'Yes, by all that is holiest, I love you, and I am entirely yours.' "'Ah!' cried Aouda, pressing her hand to her heart. Passepartout was summoned, and appeared immediately. Mr. Fogg still held Aouda's hand in his own. Passepartout understood, and his big round face became as radiant as the tropical sun at its zenith. Mr. Fogg asked him if it was not too late to notify the Reverend Samuel Wilson of Marylebone Parish that evening. Passepartout smiled his most genial smile, and said, "'Never too late!' It was five minutes past eight. "'Will it be for to-morrow, Monday?' "'For to-morrow.' "'Monday,' said Mr. Fogg, turning to Aouda. "'Yes, for to-morrow, Monday,' she replied. Passepartout hurried off as fast as his legs could carry him. End of chapter Chapter 36 of Around the World in Eighty Days This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina.
Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne. Chapter thirty six, in which Phileas Fogg's name is once more at a premium on change. It is time to relate what a change took place in English public opinion when it transpired that the real bank robber, a certain James Strand, had been arrested on the seventeenth day of December at Edinburgh. Three days before, Phileas Fogg had been a criminal, who was being desperately followed up by the police. Now he was an honourable gentleman, mathematically pursuing his eccentric journey round the world. The papers resumed their discussion about the wager. All those who had laid bets for or against him revived their interest, as if by magic. The Phileas Fogg bonds again became negotiable, and many new wagers were made. Phileas Fogg's name was once more at a premium on change. His five friends of the Reform Club passed these three days in a state of feverish suspense. Would Phileas Fogg, whom they had forgotten, reappear before their eyes? Where was he at this moment? The 17th of December, the day of James Strand's arrest, was the 76th since Phileas Fogg's departure, and no news of him had been received. Was he dead? Had he abandoned the effort, or was he continuing his journey along the route agreed upon? And would he appear on Saturday, the 21st of December, at a quarter before nine in the evening, on the threshold of the Reform Club saloon? The anxiety in which, for three days, London society existed, cannot be described. Telegrams were sent to America and Asia for news of Phileas Fogg. Messengers were dispatched to the house in Savile Row, morning and evening. No news. The police were ignorant what had become of the detective, Fix, who had so unfortunately followed up a false scent. Bets increased, nevertheless, in number and value. Phileas Fogg, like a racehorse, was drawing near his last turning-point. The bonds were quoted, no longer at a hundred below par, but at twenty, at ten, and at five, and paralytic old Lord Albemarle bet even in his favour. A great crowd was collected in Pell-Mell and the neighbouring streets on Saturday evening. It seemed like a multitude of brokers permanently established around the Reform Club. Circulation was impeded, and everywhere disputes, discussions, and financial transactions were going on. The police had great difficulty in keeping back the crowd, and as the hour when Phileas Fogg was due approached, the excitement rose to its highest pitch. The five antagonists of Phileas Fogg had met in the great saloon of the club. John Sullivan and Samuel Philanton, the bankers, Andrew Stewart, the engineer, Gothio Ralph, the director of the Bank of England, and Thomas Flanagan, the brewer, one and all, waited anxiously. When the clock indicated twenty minutes past eight, Andrew Stewart got up, saying, "'Gentlemen, and in twenty minutes the time agreed upon between Mr. Fogg and ourselves will have expired.' "'What time did the last train arrive from Liverpool?' asked Thomas Flanagan. "'At twenty-three minutes past seven, replied Gauthier Ralph, "'and the next does not arrive till ten minutes after twelve. "'Well, gentlemen,' resumed Andrew Stewart. If Phileas Fogg had come in on the 723 train, he would have got here by this time. We can, therefore, regard the bet as won. "'Wait!' 
"'Don't let us be too hasty,' replied Samuel Fallington. "'You know that Mr. Fogg is very eccentric. His punctuality is well known. He never arrives too soon, or too late, and I should not be surprised if he appeared before us at the last minute.' "'Why,' said Andrew Stewart nervously, "'if I should see him I should not believe it was he.' "'The fact is,' resumed Thomas Flanagan, Mr. Fogg's project was absurdly foolish. Whatever his punctuality, he could not prevent the delays which were certain to occur, and a delay of only two or three days would be fatal to his tour. Observe, too, added John Sullivan, that we have received no intelligence from him, though there are telegraphic lines all along his route. He has lost, gentlemen, said Andrew Stewart. He has a hundred times lost. You know, besides, that the China, the only steamer he could have taken from New York to get here in time, arrived yesterday. I have seen a list of the passengers, and the name of Phileas Fogg is not among them. Even if we admit that fortune has favoured him, he can scarcely have reached America. I think he will be at least twenty days behind hand, and that Lord Albemarle will lose a cool five thousand. It is clear, replied Gauthier Ralph and we have nothing to do but to present Mr. Fogg's check at Baring's to-morrow. At this moment the hands of the club clock pointed to twenty minutes to nine. Five minutes more,' said Andrew Stewart. The five gentlemen looked at each other. Their anxiety was becoming intense, but, not wishing to betray it, they readily assented to Mr. Fallington's proposal of a rubber. "'I wouldn't give up my four thousand of the bet,' said Andrew Stewart, as he took his seat, "'for three thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine. The clock indicated eighteen minutes to nine. The players took up their cards, but could not keep their eyes off the clock. Certainly, however secure they felt, minutes had never seemed so long to them. Seventeen minutes to nine said Thomas Flanagan, as he cut the cards which Ralph handed to him. Then there was a moment of silence. The great saloon was perfectly quiet. But the murmurs of the crowd outside were heard, with now and then a shrill cry. The pendulum beat the seconds, which each player eagerly counted, as he listened, with mathematical regularity. Sixteen minutes to nine, said John Sullivan, in a voice which betrayed his emotion. One minute more, and the wager would be won. Andrew Stewart and his partners suspended their game. They left their cards and counted the seconds. At the fortieth second, nothing. At the fiftieth, still nothing. At the fifty-fifth, a loud cry was heard in the street, followed by applause, hurrahs, and some fierce growls. The players arose from their seats. At the fifty-seventh second the door of the saloon opened, and the pendulum had not beat the sixtieth second when Phileas Fogg appeared, followed by an excited crowd who had forced their way through the club doors, and in his calm voice said, "'Here I am, gentlemen!' End of chapter Chapter 37 the final chapter of Around the World in Eighty Days. 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Around the World in Eighty Days by Jules Verne Chapter 37 In which it is shown that Phileas Fogg gained nothing by his tour around the world, unless it were happiness. Yes, Phileas Fogg in person. The reader will remember that at five minutes past eight in the evening, about five and twenty hours after the arrival of the travellers in London, Passepartout had been sent by his master to engage the services of the Reverend Samuel Wilson in a certain marriage ceremony which was to take place the next day. Passepartout went on his errand enchanted. He soon reached the clergyman's house, but found him not at home. Passepartout waited a good twenty minutes, and when he left the reverend gentleman it was thirty-five minutes past eight. But in what a state he was! With his hair in disorder and without his hat, he ran along the street as never man was seen to run before, overturning passers-by, rushing over the sidewalk like a water-spout. In three minutes he was in Savile Row again, and staggered back into Mr. Fogg's room. He could not speak. "'What is the matter?' asked Mr. Fogg. "'My master!' gasped Passepartout. "'Marriage! Impossible!' "'Impossible?' possible for to-morrow why so because to-morrow is sunday monday replied mr fogg no to today is saturday saturday impossible yes 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 cried passepartout you have made a mistake of one day we arrived twenty-four hours ahead of time but there are only ten minutes left." Passepartout had seized his master by the collar, and was dragging him along with irresistible force. Phileas Fogg, thus kidnapped, without having time to think, left his house, jumped into a cab, promised a hundred pounds to the cabman, and having run over two dogs and overturned five carriages, reached the Reform Club. The clock indicated a quarter before nine when he appeared in the great saloon. Phileas Fogg had accomplished the journey round the world in eighty days. Phileas Fogg had won his wager of twenty thousand pounds. How was it that a man so exact and fastidious could have made this error of a day? How came he to think that he had arrived in London on Saturday, the twenty-first day of December, when it was really Friday, the twentieth, the seventy-ninth day only, from his departure? The cause of the error is very simple. Phileas Fogg had, without suspecting it, gained one day on his journey, and this merely because he had travelled constantly eastward. He would, on the contrary, have lost a day had he gone in the opposite direction, that is, westward. In journeying eastward he had gone towards the sun, and the days therefore diminished for him as many times four minutes as he crossed degrees in this direction. There are three hundred and sixty degrees on the circumference of the earth, and these three hundred and sixty degrees multiplied by four minutes gives precisely twenty-four hours. That is, the day unconsciously gained. 
In other words, while Phileas Fogg, going eastward, saw the sun pass the meridian eighty times, his friends in London only saw it pass the meridian seventy-nine times. This is why they awaited him at the Reform Club on Saturday, and not Sunday, as Mr. Fogg thought. And Passepartout's famous family watch, which had always kept London time, would have betrayed this fact, if it had marked the days as well as the hours and the minutes. Phileas Fogg, then, had won the twenty thousand pounds, but as he had spent nearly nineteen thousand on the way, the pecuniary gain was small. His object was, however, to be victorious and not to win money. He divided the one thousand pounds that remained between Passepartout and the unfortunate Fix, against whom he cherished no grudge. He deducted, however, from Passepartout's share, the cost of the gas which had burned in his room for nineteen hundred and twenty hours, for the sake of regularity. That evening Mr. Fogg, as tranquil and phlegmatic as ever, said to Aouda, "'Is our marriage still agreeable to you?' "'Mr. Fogg,' replied she, "'it is for me to ask that question. You were ruined, but now you are rich again.' Pardon me, madam, my fortune belongs to you. If you had not suggested our marriage, my servant would not have gone to the Reverend Samuel Wilson's. I should not have been apprised of my error, and— Dear Mr. Fogg, said the young woman. Dear Aouda, replied Phileas Fogg. It need not be said that the marriage took place forty-eight hours after, and that Passepartout, glowing and dazzling, gave the bride away. Had he not saved her, and was he not entitled to this honour? The next day, as soon as it was light, Passepartout rapped vigorously at his master's door. Mr. Fogg opened it, and asked, "'What's the matter, Passepartout?' "'What is it, sir? Why, I've just this instant found out—' "'What?' that we might have made the tour of the world in only seventy-eight days." "'No doubt,' returned Mr. Fogg, "'by not crossing India. But if I had not crossed India I should not have saved Aouda. She would not have been my wife, and—' Mr. Fogg quietly shut the door. Phileas Fogg had won his wager, and had made his journey around the world in eighty days. To do this he had employed every means of conveyance steamers, railways, carriages, yachts, trading vessels, sledges, elephants. The eccentric gentleman had throughout displayed all his marvellous qualities of coolness and exactitude. But what then? What had he really gained by all this trouble? What had he brought back from this long and weary journey? Nothing, say you? Perhaps so. Nothing but a charming woman, who, strange as it may appear, made him the happiest of men. Truly, would you not for less than that make the tour around the world? End of chapter. End of story. Thank you for listening.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its Opry ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com.